the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone and co-hosting this week, it is Whitesnake guitarist Joel Hoekstra. Good day, Joel. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to talk to you again, bro. It is. And as you know, I got to see your show with a Foreigner and Whitesnake Saturday night in Saratoga Springs. First of all, I love that venue. I've been going there since I was like 17 years old. It is so gorgeous but uh what a great package this summer huh? i mean you guys and jason bonham's led zeppelin evening wow just wow yeah man i mean i think it's three great catalogs of music that people get to hear and really truly is a night where everybody's going to know basically every single song and that actually is hard to say on even uh packages with well-known bands so uh yeah it's a great night of classic rock and i hope to see everybody out and how is it for you to get back sort of in that white snake saddle? Because you've, you've been doing that stuff with Cher. So how is it sort of like to – let's do a quick compare and contrast. What, what are the two gigs like? Because they're both big shows, a lot of big hits, but obviously different music. Yeah, they're different planets, man. <laughs> it's definitely very, very different. But no, it's all there, man. You know, it's uh, – it's like putting on a, a, an old pair of shoes. It hasn't been that long. I mean, we took one year off of touring basically to uh, work on uh, the upcoming album that'll be out early 2019. And uh, of course, David had me play on a uh, pre existing record, Restless Heart, too. So I've been working with David and Rev a lot, uh, you know, throughout the past year and, and putting on the, that White Snake hat um, from time to time. So. You know, it's all, it all feels very natural. I will say, though, it's great to be like back in the saddle with everybody. It's a great lineup in terms of our camaraderie and, and how well we get along. And, um, you know, I think we play well together, too, and all that stuff. But we all, we're all good. We're great friends, you know. So um, the bus is just like nothing but laughs. And uh, so it's just great to be back with the guys and, and uh, be doing it. It's, it is a lot different than the share gig, obviously. That's more like, um, you know, playing stylistically anything from the 1960s to her kind of dance stuff to her 80s stuff that uh, I get to step out with her and I'm, I'm glad to have the gig and all that stuff. It's great fun. Um, but, you know, it's obviously awesome to be back with Whitesnake right now. Yeah, it really is. And, 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 and just quickly talk to me about having Foreigner on the bill because a lot of folks would say, well, Whitesnake should go out with Def Leppard. Whitesnake should go out with Poison. Whitesnake... But I think Foreigner is a great match for you because folks seem to forget that Foreigner was a rock band before they became the I Want to Know What Love Is band. They were a kick-ass rock band. Yeah. You know, I had the opportunity to fill in with Nick, too, in 2011. So uh, when he was sick, I was uh, Night Ranger was opening up for Foreigner and Journey at that point when uh, Mick got ill. And I was in there you know, on 24 hours notice all of a sudden in front of 18,000 people going, oh, my God, I'm, I'm Mick Jones right now, you know. Uh, so I, you know, because of my friends and going through that, that, uh, those almost trauma, trauma, like warlike conditions, <laughs> learning a set in 24 hours, uh, gives a special bond to all those guys, you know? So Jeff Pilsen, obviously, you know, wonderful guy and, and great music director in that band. And, um, they're just such talented dudes. That lineup is just mega talent. Um, 
you know, they, they obviously catch a lot of grief for Mick being the only original member and all that stuff, but I don't know, they sound as good as, if not better than every band on the circuit. So I find it hard to find any dislike for that. They're constantly working. They sound amazing. And, uh, you know, they're, they're great guys. Yeah. And, 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 and as far as the, the, the one original members, I mean, the, there are bands out there that have no original members and we're not going to start naming it, but, but you know what, <laughs> You look at the the foreigner guys. Most of the guys have been there at least fourteen or fifteen years. I think they they got started up again in two thousand four. So Jeff's been there for fourteen years. Uh, Kelly Hansen's been there for fourteen years. So you know, careful, careful now, Mitch. You're going to start making sense. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> so and, and it's. I mean, no, I, that's exactly my point. Everybody's like, well, I mean, do you know how that feels to be with something that long? I mean, they've been with it longer than the original guys, you know. So, I mean, obviously, I think um, a great source of that probably comes from uh, Lou. Not not necessarily being there, but you know, it's Kelly. I'm telling you, man, that guy is from another planet in terms of the way he sings this stuff. He's just amazing, yeah. I think. Uh, and a great showman. So, uh, and I, yeah, and a great showman. So sometimes I think people just, uh, I guess they just don't want to look at the positive side of things. Like, man, here we are listening to the current lineup of Foreigner, and they sound killer, and that's great. You know, uh, it's. I think nowadays with the scene getting older and older, people should uh, count their blessings that they're still able to hear foreigner more yeah. than, you know, critique it from all these angles. Yeah. Well, I fully agree with that. And, and I have to say when foreigner was in their prime, if you want, in the eighties, uh, they weren't part of my musical decor. So even if they had come to Montreal, I probably wouldn't have bought a ticket because at the time, you know, it was for me, I had to buy all the tickets back then. So I had to choose. It was either I see Aerosmith this week or I see Kiss next week. I couldn't see Kiss and Aerosmith and four. And so I'm glad that they're still around and they're delivering a show. I just saw them in Ottawa in March and it was it was fantastic. I mean, there's nothing that you could complain about. It's, it's anyway, a uh, great band. Now, of course, you're doing this tour all the way till the beginning of August. In fact, it ends on my daughter's birthday. And then you turn around and fly across the country from California back to New York or Atlantic City, I should say, which is, I guess, is Jersey, right? Atlantic City is Jersey, right? Right. Um, correct. Yeah. Right. For, for us non-Americans. Uh, and then you start up with Cher again. Like, do you well, ever the stop? Atlantic City thing is share. Yeah, there's like a, <laughs> so when the when the run with Foreigner ends, there's a few headlining shows for White Snake, um, Arizona, Vegas, and then we're going to play in Vancouver, essentially, um, just outside of Vancouver. Wow. Uh, so those headlining shows, and then I go from there to Atlantic City to do a little tiny run with Share, just kind of like some makeup shows there. And, uh, after that, I got some acoustic shows with my buddy, Brandon Gibbs that I love to do. He's such a great guy and, and great guitar player and singer. So we just, Agreed. you know, if there's a hole in my schedule, I'll take shows and we'll, we'll go do them. So I'm going to, I think do three, four shows with him. And then Cher is going to Australia for like five weeks. And it's going to be a big arena tour actually doing all like huge, um, huge shows down there so i'm excited it's actually my first time going to australia and never in a million years would have i i would i thought that would be a share but um it's like you know count your blessings dude you know i'm glad to be going wow. down there so wow. uh do that's so amazing and then i come home a little over a week and then uh you know god willing assuming all goes according to plan the trans-siberian orchestra tour so 
um, which I, I do as an annual thing. So for November and December. So the rest of my year is really um, pretty slammed. It's pretty awesome. When do you take a moment to breathe? I mean, it's it's just busy, busy, yeah, busy, well, there's, busy. Yeah, there's lots of days off, you know. I mean, thankfully, uh, you know, White Snake usually has a, a few days off a week. David doesn't want to play six days a week anymore, you know. I think he, everybody knows that they're not 25 years old at this stage of the game. And Cher, I think she's 72. So there's certainly days off built in. Um, it's, it's great. People say that all the time. But I look at it like, are you kidding? There's like, you know, people uh, with their day jobs going in for 10, 12-hour days five, six days a week. And I feel like we're blessed as musicians to have this opportunity to work three, four days a week or whatever. It's like, come on, it doesn't get any better. You can't complain too much. Now, uh, we will get to the uh, White Snake Flesh and Blood album after our first guest, who happens to be Nita Strauss. She's got her first solo album coming out, Controlled Chaos. Uh, Real quick, do you you know Nita personally or or have you you followed her at all, what she's doing with Alice Cooper? Because I think she's just a fantastic fantastic guitarist yeah she's awesome and her stage presence is amazing as well she's a total performer and a great person more than anything above and beyond all of that i mean she's just really got her attitude together and her life together and she's making all the right decisions and that's why she's getting where she's getting right now where everybody's kind of starting to know her name and she's you know becoming a you know, one of the, the bigger names in, in rock guitar right now. So I'm totally happy for her. She's been awesome to me every time we've ever met and super respectful and, and cool. And uh, I forget, it was 2016. I think White Snake was out. Uh, I, th- I want to say the day was in Wisconsin and where Alice Cooper played the night before us. And uh, I, I watched the show side of stage and they, they killed it. I mean, what a great show they put on. And I was just, I was blown away by, of course, Nita plays awesome, but she just is a killer showman, show woman. <laughs> That's a proper term, but she, she just kills on stage. You know, she's got total charisma and is a total star. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was blown blown away. And then she's got no attitude off stage, which is super amazing and super cool. So like I said, she's got it together, man. But I think that's a that's a product also of the environment she's in because if you if you ever meet Chuck or Tommy or Ryan or even Alice or even Toby Mann is you know, they, that entire gang, for the lack of a better word, everybody's so nice. Just beyond nice, every single one of them. So, you know, it's it's hard to to cop an attitude when you're around nice all day, but I don't think she has that in her <laughs> anyway, you know. Yeah, they are they are a great bunch, and I think you know Alice. That's just you, you get that when you get these guys who have been in, in rock for a long time, and they're really really smart smart enough to put good people around themselves. So definitely, that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, many many people can play great, and it's it's uh, as you know, not telling anything you don't know. It's it's about so much more than that. It, it really is, and. If you look at most of the bands that have had these careers, whether it's David Coverdale or Rob Halford or even the Kiss guys, they're not there necessarily because they've played all the right notes. They're there because they've made all the right moves, if you know what I mean, right? So kudos to all of them. Yeah, correct. I think a lot of it is about having your head on straight (laughs) and uh, definitely and making yourself somebody that people want to be around. Uh, A lot of it just comes down to your, your traveling together. So, you know, you've heard a million times about falling out with original members of bands, you know, and if it's not about money, it's usually over. They drive each other crazy after 30 years of traveling together. So it is difficult. I mean, you have to find people that, 
just have easygoing personalities that you can gel with and get along with. And those are the people that tend to do well. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that's, that's exactly what you're feeling uh, going around with Reb Beach. Cause he's also one of these sweethearts. So, you know, anyway, uh, let us listen to Anita Strauss, talk about her debut solo album, a little bit of Alice Cooper news. Uh, so without further ado, here is the one, the only Nita Strauss. We are speaking with Alice Cooper guitarist, Nita Strauss. Nita, always, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. And this time we are not talking about anything Alice Cooper, at least not at the beginning. We are talking about <laughs> we are talking about your debut solo album, which I have to say I'm, I'm very, very excited about. And um, I'm going to start off with this just quick straight off the Kickstarter page. It says, I have spent most of my career playing other people's songs. Now I want to show the world what I'm all about. So so talk to me about that quote and sort of that that inspiration to to put together this debut solo album. Well, you know, you need you need something to let people know quickly, you know, what where you're coming from and what the story is all about and why they should want to support it. And that is kind of the most concise way that I could put it. Anybody that's followed my career knows that I jumped into the hired gun world pretty quickly. And although I did tour for many years with my own music, you know, the majority of my career has been spent playing Alice Cooper songs or Iron Maiden songs or Jermaine Jackson songs or doing studio work or one-offs, you know, with other bands. And I just felt like at this point in my career, I'm 31 years old. I've been touring for 16 years. It's time that I do something on my own and, you know, actually really set aside the time to do it and do it properly rather than just putting out a song here or there. So that's what my album Controlled Chaos is going to be. So in terms of musical style and musical direction, is it just a guitarist, you know, instrumental thing? Is, is it vocal? Where are we looking in terms of style and, and what can fans expect there? Well, it's not going to be a vocally driven album. You know, if there is if there is any music with vocals, it'll be one song. And I'm actually probably now that the album's closer to being finished, not even going to do that. It wouldn't be me singing anyway. Uh, but that being said, it's not so much a, an album for only guitar players. There are a lot of guitar instrumental albums that really are geared towards other guitar players. And this one is really for fans of rock and heavy metal music in general. You know, I released uh, my single Pandemonium last year, and I was so happy to see that it got a great reaction, not just from guitar players. You know, it made it had a national radio play. And it was, you know, it was widely accepted by not just, you know, guitar world guitar player, but by, you know, big music magazines and big music websites that were, you know, more mainstream geared rather than guitar player geared. So that's really what I want to do. I want to make a guitar album that's not just for guitar players. And that makes sense to me. Now, I know you want to go off on your own. You want to sort of show the world what, what you're about. Is that something, though, as you start thinking about the next phase of your career? Because I think you've gotten to a point where you can't go back and be in a tribute band. And Alice Cooper, at some point, probably in the next five to seven to ten years, is most likely going to retire. Um, so where does that leave you? And so how do you start planning for, I guess, phase two or phase three? Well, I mean, as I'm sure you know, I've played in a lot of other bands that aren't tribute bands. <laughs> So it's not like that of course, was of course. my only option. Right, no, no, of but, course. Uh, but, you know, I think definitely having my own music is going to be a huge step in the right direction. You know, we already, I just got the routing for my first solo tour uh, yesterday. So that's going to be uh, at the end of this year, at the end of 2018. And that's going to be sort of like the, the testing the waters to see how well it can really do. And, 
you know, who knows with Coop? He's in such amazing shape. His voice has never been stronger. If he, you say five to seven years, it could be another, you know, 50 years with modern medicine. Who knows? Yeah. He's showing no signs of slowing down. It, it is amazing, though. So uh, let me talk quickly then about Cooper. Uh, I, 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 mean, I mean, he's going to be 80 soon, you know, and the guy still keeps going and going and going. Uh, talk to me about the guitar playing and how you you know, fit your guitar style into what he does and the fact that the shows never have a pause for the guitarist. Alice will walk off and do a, a costume change and so on and so forth, but talk to me about the rigors of of the show for you because it really is two hours of you not getting a break. Yeah, it's true. You know, like, I think Glenn and I have it the roughest because we're the ones with the solos. You know, at least the other guys get a, a minute here, a minute there, but... Glenn and I have to play through one of those minutes as our solo time. Uh, but it's amazing. You know, I don't know ma- very many artists at Alice's level that will step back and give the musicians a spotlight. So it's uh, it's just really amazing to be a part of. And when I first joined the band, he Alice tweeted me aside and he said, look, when, when you're doing that solo, when you're up on that riser, you're Alice Cooper. You're the star. So don't be afraid to take that stage and command it. And I said, if, as long as you're sure. And uh, and it's amazing, you know. It's it's great to get to be to be in a band where you get to really express yourself, and you're not always standing behind the singer, trying not to step on anybody's toes. We're all just there to make the show great, make Alice look great, and uh, and I think that's what we've been doing lately on the tour. Oh, absolutely. So, talk to me about your evolution since you've joined Alice's band, because there there was a time where you were just the new guitarist and, and, you know, you were part of the decor, if you want. And I, I, know, that, I know that sounds terrible to say, but you, you know what I mean. It was just That's part. true. Totally. But, but, but now you've really become a star upon yourself and there's interviews, like we're doing one today, and you've got your own uh, Ibanez signature guitar. And it, it, just talk to me about sort of that, 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 that what do you, what am I, what do you, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not a timeline, but um, the arc, that sort of, that you're, you're, arc within Alice Cooper? Well, you know, you never want to come into a new situation and just like bulldoze through everything. Like, you know, I'm here. It's about me now. And then especially with, you know, playing with someone like Alice Cooper, I would never presume to take on that, you know, that kind of role of like, you know, give me the attention I'm here. But, you know, as, as time progressed and we all got more comfortable with each other on stage, you know, and my personality started coming out, fans really started gravitating toward it. And, you know, I, I love playing guitar. That's my gimmick. Like that's, you know, it's, that's what I do. I love playing guitar and that kind of that love and that exuberance, I think is what makes people want to see me play. And that's, you know, I'm very lucky that I don't have to try too hard (laughs) to to find something that people like, because I, I love my gig. Like, you know, I, I have, I have loved the last four years playing with Alice Cooper and I wouldn't, I've learned so much and I've, you know, grown so much as a musician, and I honestly, I wouldn't trade this experience for anything. It's, it's really been a blessing. I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, and and I think you've earned uh, the respect just by your playing and your stage presence. I mean, I think fans just look at that and go, oh yeah, there, there's something special and unique going on there. Uh, speaking of special and unique, let's talk about this Ibanez. You know, well, I say Jiva. But I don't know if it's the right <laughs> pronunciation, but but you do have a signature guitar that is exceptionally uh, impressive. I mean, not not everybody just gets a, a you know. There's no Mitch Lafon signature guitar, 
for, for, <laughs> for many reasons. But but talk to me about that and, and how the company came to you and said, we want to do this. And then once they said that, your reaction and your input and, you know, I want this and, and that, you know, knob. And talk to me about sort of the whole process and, and what makes this guitar, you know, unique. Yeah. So uh, I've been an Ibanez artist for 10 years this year. And Ibanez, Ibanez is my dream. All my heroes are Ibanez players. You know, some people's heroes are Les Paul players. Some people's heroes are Dean guitar players. All my heroes are Ibanez guys. And uh, I got, I signed with Ibanez in September of 2008. And two, I want to say two months after that, I was on my first huge tour playing. I think I was playing with Jermaine Jackson at that time, you know. And so ever since then, they sort of said, okay, we took a gamble on this relatively unknown guitar player from L.A., and as basically as soon as they took a chance on me, it kind of started paying off. I started getting bigger gigs. I started working more. I, you know, started touring the world. And so they have always kind of been there for me and thrown the support behind me, which was huge because when I got signed with Ibanez in 2008, I was the only female guitar player on the roster. And now fast forward to 2018, I'm the first female signature artist in the company's history. And designing my guitar, it's actually pronounced Jiva, uh, and designing my signature guitar was, you know, it was, it was a really easy process because I had been designing that guitar in my head since the fourth grade. <laughs> you know, I had been thinking about if I had my own guitar, what would it, what would it be like? What color would it be? What wood would it have? What neck would it have? What would it be called? So when the time came and they said, okay, we're, we're ready to do this. We want to put it in production. I just basically sat down with the list. I said, here it is. Can we make this? And they said, yep. And that's what it is. That's the Jiva 10. And it looks it looks spectacular. I, in fact, I have it right in front of me in terms of on a picture, and it looks spectacular. Um, I do want to ask yeah. you though about that term female guitars because every time I read, in, or not every time, but a lot of times when I read something about you or some of the other ones or Orionthe, I always get this term female guitars, and it sort of bothers me that it's not just guitarist. You don't see Ryan Roxy male guitarist or Tommy right. male. Um, is that something that's just sort of par for course, and you just sort of go, man, it's all right. It, or does, or does that designation also sort of bother you a bit and go, why can't I just be guitarist? Why do I have to be female guitarist? Oh, gosh. If I let that kind of stuff bother me, I would be miserable all the time. Right. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> I would just be so miserable all the time. And, you know, I, I'm, I would be lying if I said it never bothered me throughout my career, you know, and, and everybody wants to be taken seriously for who they are. But at the end of the day... You know, it it is who I am. I'm not trying to hide the fact that I'm a woman and I play the guitar. You know, it's to me, it's kind of not really any different than saying a uh, guitar player from Los Angeles. You know, like it's it's a it's a headline. And you know, if if I got worked up about all that kind of stuff, I would just be preoccupied and miserable all the time. Okay, but but I but it but would I be preferable. Where you're coming from? Okay, and, and but it would be preferred or pre- preferable just to say guitarist because I think skills alone. There's no need for any kind of other designation. Um, let's it's get... true, and and just to just to finish that thought, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the cool thing about it being 2018, and you know, you mentioned Orianti, and of course the trailblazers like Lita Ford and Jennifer Batten and Michelle Meldrum, and the newbies like me and Ori and Courtney Cox and Neely Brosh and Gretchen Men and Irene Katakiti, like there's there's this huge super wave of insanely good female guitar players out there. And it makes it not weird to be a girl and play guitar anymore. You know, like I used to walk into guitar centers and people would ask me if I was there to buy a gift for someone. And no one has done that in a very long time. 
which isn't, is really, really cool. Isn't that great? And and I actually interviewed Orianti about three weeks ago, and um, her and Richie, and, and I had a great conversation with them. And, and I've got to say, and I said this to her, I think that her stepping away from Alice and going with Richie was absolutely fantastic. I think what they do together is perfect. And le- not letting you, but having letting that void be created so that you could step in. I think you're just absolutely perfect. And I think both of you are exactly where you should be in terms of what you're doing musically because it, it, they're both great fits. Just both great Thank fits. Thank you. Um, and can, Ori's just killing it too. That that Blues Won't Leave Me Alone is just absolutely killer. Right? Isn't it though? I mean, she, she's, Yeah, she's never sounded better. She's never sounded better. And what she's doing with Richie is just absolutely great. It's what she should be doing, and I think what you're doing with Alice is... is but you know that. I've told you that for four or five years now. Um, <laughs> let, let's get back to Control Chaos. You have been talking about a solo album for many, many years. Uh, not publicly, necessarily, but it is something that, you know, in hotel rooms and blah, blah, blah. Uh, talk to me about sort of the process of getting it together. Mm-hmm. Are, are, you know, how far back do some of these songs go? How far back do some of these ideas go? Um, you know, are we looking at 30 songs and you're going to pick the best 10? Just talk to me about sort of how long it's taken and, you know, where do we end with it? So basically the journey started uh, in, I guess it would be September of, was it 16? September of 2016, maybe. Um, And that was when Steve Vai approached me to contribute a song to his, to an album that he was putting together. So he, he was putting an album together for his label, Favored Nations, called She Rocks. And it was basically a showcase of female guitar players, our favorite word. Right. <laughs> and it was uh, it was Jennifer Batten and Ori and me and, and a lot of other amazing up-and-coming female guitar players. And I said, yeah, I would love to do it. And at that time, I was just so focused. You know, I've always been so focused on writing music for a band because I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought that I wanted to have my own band, you know, and I do. I have my band, We Start Wars. You know, and I was writing music for that and I was just super gung ho about it. But when your hero says, hey, would you, you know, contribute something? There's no way to turn that down. So I wrote the first song, Pandemonium, and I wrote Pandemonium in about two days. And I'm saying recorded, finished, done, like everything done. The only thing that wasn't done in those first two days was Josh's drum playing. Everything else was done in two days in my kitchen. And as soon as I kind of as soon as I did that, I I was like, oh, it's doable. I got the bug. Like, now I know I can do it. I did one. So after that came out in January of 2017, I went back on the road with Alice and I brought my Pro Tools rig with me and I would just sit in hotel rooms and work on stuff on days off. And it's funny, like a lot of that guitar playing that was done in those hotel rooms in random cities is going to end up on the album. It's, it's the amazing thing about working in 2018. You don't have to, you know, be in an expensive studio and pay hourly rates to get amazing sounding guitars. So a lot of that that I did, you know, if you look at the working titles, it's like Dublin, September, so-and-so, you know, Topeka. It's, you know, they're all labeled with the name of the city where I started working on the song. And, uh, and a lot of that's going to make it on the final record because you can do so much with Pro Tools these days and so much with a, a good, clean DI guitar sound. So it's been, I would say, about... Gosh, a solid year and a half of writing and demoing and coming up with stuff in between everything else I'm doing. And then ever since the Kickstarter, it's been like a solid five weeks of just like really buckling down and working. Yeah, and that's the way it is. Now, now you did mention We Start Wars, and I was going to ask you about that. Uh, what is sort of, you know, 
where are we with that project? I know there was the, the, the show out in L.A. and so on and so forth. I haven't really heard much in the last couple of months. Where are we with that project, and, and do we see an album eventually? Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the hard thing about a band, about a real band and not a solo project, is people have lives. You know, musicians have other stuff to do. And I, I told the girls in We Start Wars from the beginning, look, I'm going to have to go on tour. If you guys have other gigs or you have other stuff you can do, please go make your money. I am not tying anyone down to a project that I don't have time to do full time. You know, because that would be so unfair of me. I leave on tour for six months and they can't do anything else. But, you know, the flip side of that is I come home, I'm like, hey, guys, you ready to work? And somebody's got a job and somebody's on tour and somebody's doing other stuff. So it's uh, it's really it's hard to get everyone in the same place at the same time. But we're working on it. And hopefully it'll it'll uh, it'll happen soon. Now, you didn't mention other projects. One of the one of the better ones this year was, of course, WrestleMania. Um, talk to me about the spectacle of WrestleMania and, and what it was like to be part of that, because it really became a showcase, not just for your talent, but a, for your personality and for who you are. And there really is something unique about that whole wrestling world. There really is. And, uh, you know, I'm a big wrestling fan and I've played at some indie shows. I've played some different wrestlers music out and uh, getting to do it on what they call the grandest stage of all at WrestleMania, you know, at the Superdome, you know, where the Saints play in front of 78,000 people. It was just like, it was a rush like I've never experienced before. Not because I haven't played to crowds that big, because I have, but the, you know, the convergence of all the biggest fans from all over the world coming to one event is a totally unique experience. I've never seen it in any in any avenue in any arena until that day so it was amazing to be a part of yeah it really was and, and of course uh, we, we all know that chris jericho uh, owns this show so <laughs> right hey chris <laughs> right so he's he'll, he'll he'll be checking this out um when alice cooper records and he's done you know the last couple of hours paranormal and stuff he, he doesn't necessarily use the touring band is that something that on the next album you would love to get a chance to be in there and, and, and contribute more, maybe contribute as the band? Because I think the band live, the way that everybody fits together is just smoking. Why not yeah. go into a studio? It would be, I, I think I can safely speak for all of us when I say it would be our absolute honor and privilege to record on the next record. It just really depends on what they decide. Uh, you know, Alice and Shep and, and Bob, everybody knows anytime they need us, we are here, we're ready to work. So it would absolutely be our privilege to play on the next record. Oh, I really think it would be, and I think it'd be great. Now, I did ask at the beginning, you know, where do we see ourselves in five or seven? Uh, but moving forward, do you do you stay in the, you know, assuming that Alice retires in seven years, though I, like we said, not sure about that, but assuming he does, <laughs> do you see yourself moving forward in the hired gun world or at some point, do you really want to get established, you know, a little bit like a Steve Vai or a Joe Satriani and, and be part of the G3 or start your own thing? Do you see yourself being a solo artist or do you see yourself being just somebody who fits in great with whatever bands out there? You know, I've said the same thing since I started playing in other people's bands when I was a teenager. I honestly, and I'll say it again and again, I just, I love playing guitar. I don't see why being a solo artist and, you know, being a hired gun have to be mutually exclusive. I know that's not what you said, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see myself for the rest of my career doing both things. You know, I'll be doing both things certainly for the next few years. And, uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't see myself doing anything different. I don't think there will ever be a time unless I'm blessed enough with my solo career to say, I don't need any more money. <laughs> like, 
you know, uh, I would, you know, I love playing guitar. I love new challenges. I love new music. I love learning new things. So I don't see any reason why I would stop touring with other musicians and doing my solo music. Yeah, you know, and and I don't, I didn't mean that in the mutually exclusive sense. But no, I, no, I know that. Yeah. But I, I've spoken to 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 you know folks and guys and, and and band, and some of them just love being behind the scenes because when they go into a city, they can go in shopping and nobody knows who they are, and they can and they sure. still have, a, and they love that. And there are other folks that have this desire to be front and center, and you got to know who I am, and you know they're they're both perfectly you know they're, they're they're it's a great career choice but so you don't have a desire necessarily to have the spotlight and be i'm nita and you're going to a nita show you wouldn't mind being you know putting on the the face paint and being the next tommy thayer and kiss you that wouldn't bother you. well you know i think any show that i'm at just because of the way i play and and the way that i perform I, you know not to say that any show is going to be the nita show but i am still going to be myself in any gig that i end up in you know even the, you know, I, I saw Pink recently and her guitar player, Justin Derrico, is, you know, this just kind of good looking guy that hangs back and, you know, and backs her up. And every once in a while he steps forward and he does a blistering solo, like better than any shred guy you've ever heard in your life. You go, oh, there that guy is. And it's not like he's the, you know, nameless ghoul in the back, but he, you know, he steps forward. And, and that's, you know, I did something similar with Jermaine Jackson, where the band was off to the side at the back of the stage every once in a while somebody would step forward and take a solo and then we would retreat back and you can find a way you know in, in wrestling they say get your shit in <laughs> like you can find a way to, to get your moves in i think uh, in any gig without stepping on people's toes and without you know without overstepping your boundaries as the backup guitar player yeah yeah so in fact that reminds me a little bit of monty Pittman, who does that with uh, madonna just totally right yes exactly and right, he, he lays back and then when it's time man it's just wow he just wails and it's great um for a quick second it's the monty Pittman show and you're there to see monty Pittman, and then he steps back and gives you know graciously hands the stage back to the queen and and you move forward yeah that 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 that, that would be a sweet gig I'm, let me tell you um yeah but, <laughs> right well, <laughs> Just uh, call up Monty and have him uh, move over to Alice, and you go move over to no. I'm just kidding. Um, the uh, Kickstarter experience. A lot of bands go to pledge music. You went Kickstarter. Just talk to me about this crowdfunding experience and what's that like. And you know, when you put it out there, you never know. You know, you could end up with zero pledges, and that's like oof. But of course, you. Yes. I, I think you're setting a record. I mean, we're we're almost at two hundred thousand, and you asked for twenty, and it's like wow. Uh, but talk to me about that experience and and that fan interaction and that that immediate appreciation because especially in your case at two hundred thousand, that means that not only do folks want it, they really really want it, and that's got to feel good. And so talk to me about that whole process. Yes, it feels amazing. And, and you know, before we launched it, I was so on the fence about doing it in the first place because I have you know I have my own studio. You know, aside from recording in my kitchen, I do actually have a studio here in LA. I don't you know like. I, I've been recording myself and my session work and everything for years. I was like, maybe, maybe I don't need to do it like this. Maybe, you know, maybe I can just do a, a self-release. But then the more I thought about it, you know, the amount that it would take to mount the production and the, you know, the tour and pay the musicians, do everything. I said, well, let me basically just treat this as a pre-order and let people pre-order the album. You know, I didn't say I can't do this if you don't help me. I said, look, here's what I'm doing. If you want to be a part of it, here's some awesome stuff that we can that that I can give you guys. And we hit that twenty thousand dollar mark in two hours. <laughs> like 
we hit our month long goal. I, I posted, I made the Kickstarter live, I announced it and I went to the gym and we had hit our goal before I was done working out. Like that's how much people care. And I think it really goes to show you, it's a testament to show that, you know, everyone always says, or not everyone, but a lot of people always say people aren't willing to pay for music. The music industry is dead. People don't support artists anymore. And I think that my Kickstarter story is very easy living testimony that if you give people a product that they want, that they're interested in, and help like make them a part of the process, people are absolutely willing to pay for it and support an artist. And it's it's amazing to see. Yeah, and, and by the way, thank you for saying that, because I have always said that people are willing to pay for music, but you look, especially, you know, I like what they call the heritage acts, and some of them on their last albums, it's really just paint by number, and you go... Yeah. You go, yeah, come on. I mean, remember in the old days when there was an insert and there was like, let's get back. Don't don't just send me nine songs that you wrote six years ago that you don't care about. And, yeah. And, and, and you know, um, it has to be something that people really care about and something you like. And the thing, you know, I think the thing with the Kickstarter and the feedback that I've gotten, which is which is really good to hear, is that people like that I'm transparent about stuff. Like I post almost every day, you know, every day I'm in the studio, I'll post a little clip of what I'm working on on my Instagram story or something. So people can see, you know, my own people put their own hard earned money up to make this a reality. And I don't want to be like, well, all right, see you in September when the album's done. You know, anybody that wants to follow along on the Instagram story, every single day that I'm in LA, just about will get a little clip of what I'm working on to say like, oh, she's really doing it. And this is how it's coming out. And this is the vibe of what it sounded like. Oh, I wasn't expecting something like this. And you know, pretty soon I'm going to be done with guitars. We're going to get into, you know, bass and drums and keyboards, and that'll be a whole nother part of the process. And people can follow along the whole way and sort of see where their money went. And I think that's really important. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, guitars, uh, bass and, uh, and drums, <laughs> is that something is that something you're handling or, or those you got other folks coming in for that? So I'll be doing all the guitars and okay. all the bass playing. Uh, Josh, my boyfriend, is going to be playing drums. He played on Pandemonium, which was my first solo song. And our styles just really mesh together, not just because I love him very much, which I do, but he, besides being the person I love, he's a phenomenal drummer. Like, he's one of the best drummers I've ever seen. And I wouldn't have him play on my record just because he's my boyfriend. So it's very lucky for me that I ended up with somebody that has that many talents, can wear that many hats. Right. And uh, the keyboards are going to be done by Kat Scarlett, who played with me in Femme Vital. She plays in We Start Wars. Basically, any band that I can get her into with me, I bring her in because she's just such a strong musician. She's Berkeley educated, really easy to work with. And she's the type of musician that will find new avenues and new pathways for the song and not just play the basic chords, which is really, really important. So she's going to be covering all that. And then everything else would be me. That's great. And I'll, and I'll just finish on this. Uh, guest musicians. Now, you, you've mentioned there might be one guest musicians, but you've also said, listen, I really want this album to be about me. And, and I commend you on that because it would have been really easy to say, oh, I've got Alice here. And I've got, you know, the, you know Monty Pittman there. And I've got Ori. That would have been the easy thing to do. But you're not doing that. So I commend you for that. But, but talk to me about... Um, you know, not wanting to have other, too many guest musicians. And have you revealed who the guest musician that's going to be just yet? I have not. Okay. And uh, we will it, wait. It is. <laughs> yes. It's uh, if I say anything, I might give it away. So I'll just say I'm just I'm very, very excited to have one guest participant on the record. 
um, you know, besides Josh and Kat, of course, who will be holding it down with me the whole time. Um, but yeah, it, it would have, it's actually really difficult to not have a bunch of friends play on it. You know, as soon as I announced it, you know, I got a lot of texts and emails saying, Hey, you know, do you want to do a song together? And I was thinking, gosh, that would be so fun. I would love to do a song, you know, with, with all these different people and these different vocalists and, you know, call in some favors and have Alice sing a song and, you know, have, you know, some of the guys we've played with in Maui, like, you know, gosh, Steven Tyler or Joe Perry or, you know, or any of these, these amazing guest musicians that I've had the privilege of working with over the years to get in touch with them and say, Hey, would you play on my record? But on the flip side, you know, going back to the very first thing we talked about in this interview, all I ever do is play other people's stuff. And all I ever do is do stuff the way other people want it done. So just for this once, just for this first record, I just want to do my own thing and let the chips fall where they may. And then no one can say, oh, well, of course she sold some records because there's this guy singing on it or this girl playing on it or this song on it. Like, you know, this is just my music played by me from me to you guys. And that's it. Yeah, and that's it. And uh, and yeah, and, and like I said, I, I just think that for this project, it's just being done right. And I think that's why the fans have responded with, in the enormous amount of, of backers and pledges. It's just you're not selling them this this sort of contrived thing, like you said, with like eight guest vocalists. And and it's just it's it's brilliant. It, and that's a cool thing. Like, you know, it is yeah. a cool thing. A lot of, you know, a it lot is. of musicians do do that and they have some amazing guests. And I'm sure I will make an album like that. But this is my first one. You know, like this is just this is the first time out of the gate. And I just want to stand on my own two feet for this one. And that's not to take anything away from the brilliant musicians that have amazing guests playing on their records. Uh, Of course not. Including including the guys in my band. No, no, of course not. But, you know, but just because this is my first one, I just I just want to do it on my own. Yep, and I agree. And uh, Nita, always a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. And hopefully we will see you on the road. Uh, Most definitely. Yep. We got a lot of dates coming up with Alice. So if you just check out alicecooper.com slash tour or follow me on social media, I'm Hurricane Nita and all the dates will be up there. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Nita Strauss, of course, the new Debut solo album is called Controlled Chaos. You can go over to kickstarter.com and check that out. Uh, Joel, you had an album out a couple of years back, uh, 13, Dying to Live. Where are we in terms of a next new solo album, or is that something that's sort of on the back burner while you're doing Cher and Whitesnake and Trans-Siberian Orchestra and, you know. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm always, I'm definitely writing and working with a few people on kind of projects that I haven't revealed yet or talked about. So that's kind of there. The dialogue has been there with Frontiers about trying to get a follow-up done for that, but it just doesn't seem to <laughs> come together. <laughs> I think it's tough now, right now, financially on both sides to justify doing another one. I'd love to. I mean, I had a blast doing that album. It was great for me to be able to have an opportunity to do all the writing and all that stuff. But honestly, it was really tough to pull that album together and um, on many sides. So I, fingers are crossed that I can do one again sometime in the future, but I do have other projects that are kind of underway right now as well. Oh, that's very cool. Now, I, I just saw Sons of Apollo in Montreal, and of course, that's uh, Derek Sherinian and Jess Scott Soto. They were on your albums. Uh, just, a, just a great, great bunch of talent and guys. Do you, uh, do you think you'll ever work with Jeff Scott ever again? 
Oh, I hope, I hope so. Definitely. I mean, Jeff and I are, are good friends. He's definitely one of the, the great guys in, in the business, obviously super talented in, in many regards, great singer, but great writer too. Writes, writes great songs and works quickly and a lot, lots, lots to like about Jeff, man. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, the 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 big thing, the big news was Whitesnake had Flesh and Blood coming out this summer or this fall. And I had already, you know, ordered 10 Japanese bonus track versions. <laughs> and then it got pushed back. So so what's sort of the story with I mean, I, I'm sure there's some stuff you can't tell me, but. What sort of happened? Is the album finished? First of all, is, 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 can we talk about it at all? Or, or no, it's, um, it's not. I mean, the, the tracking is done. Yeah, we can talk about it. I mean, okay. I think that we we were probably at about like eighty, ninety percent done, and it was sort of like the third. Well, the the first delay was David getting sick for like six weeks. <laughs> we went to shoot yeah. the video, and that set us back a bit. So that set us back to like, okay, so we're looking at a fall release. And then I think the, there was two delays in the studio, one being the board and the second one being the hard drive um, that just kind of were going to push us back enough that we were probably going to be late turning it in. And at that point, you know, you start looking if you're David and like, well, are we going to put this out when we're not going to be on tour? <laughs> you know, are we going to put this out in November uh, or are we going to release it next year when we're going to be going out on a long tour? So I think that that's ultimately probably what, uh, you know, made the, the most sense. And there's also things like people don't often realize you have to turn an album in four months ahead of its release nowadays to have vinyl manufactured. So there is things like that that contribute as well. You know, it's not like you can just turn the thing in and it's out a week later. It doesn't work like that. Like a label has an album with finished product for uh, usually, you know, it's been three months, but I think now that vinyl is getting so popular again, it's, it's four months. So, you know, I mean, look, it's not Armageddon, you know, and it really has nothing to do with like the label rejected it and all this, the speculation that you read or, you know, David's not singing well or whatever. It's all great. You know, all that stuff is great. It's just technical issues like was reported and uh, it'll be out early 2019. I don't know the specific release, but, um, you know, and of course there's also the prior commitments because as those because we all saw that Dave, I mean, we saw on the Twitter and stuff that David had been saying that he was sick and stuff. And then you've got the foreigner tour that starts. You can't jump off the road and go back in the studio and, and do a, a day of guitars or a, a day of drums. And, and then you're, you're off all, doing all the tracking is done. All everything. The, all okay. the tracking is done. It's really just in the mixing. That, that's okay. it. We were sort of like at the stage of, you know, I would say 80, 90% done. And it was just mixing and mastering to be done yet. That was it. So it's all good, you know, and then I think, I don't know if David had picked out the song sequence because there were 18 songs that we did, which is obviously too much. So for me. Um, uh, there, there was, <laughs> there was also him figuring out, uh, I think which ones in the sequence and stuff like that, but that's literally the, the phase we're at. I mean, there was, you know, artwork see, for the cover and the whole nine yards already. So see, see, this, this is what I see. He's on tour and he won't be able to handle that. So just send them over to me. I will pick the best 12 <laughs> and I will sequence them uh, and I'll do it for free. Well, listen, I won't I charge David you. responding to you online. I think you and David have a pretty good rapport. You never know what you could work out, man. You know, that's right. And I have to say, and, and folks didn't see this, but uh, I tweeted something about white snake and David direct messaged me on Twitter. That was like, Oh my God. 
<laughs> that was so so very exciting. Uh, but yeah, so I'll ask you this then, and, and then we'll move on from this discussion. But uh, and, and again, if you can't respond, you can't respond. But but musically, are, are, what are we? Are, is it like White Snake nineteen eighty seven? Is it White Snake White Snake two thousand eighteen? Is it White Snake nineteen eighty three? Is it a, a bit of bit of everything? Like it's a bit of everything, and then it's what David picks out as the the songs that would be there. You no, know? no, I'll there, I'll, there I'll, I'll do that that's... for you. I'll I'll do the picking. Don't worry about <laughs> okay. it. Don't you worry. Yeah, there, there's a bit of everything, and and there are like there is some stuff that's sort of new territory too. There's a little there's a little bit of everything. Again, 18 songs. So um, wow, you know how uh, what ones he picks out to to be on the actual record. You know, we'll we'll have to wait and see, and then people. Um, you know, make the comparisons from there in terms of what they think it sounds like. I, I'm sensing Japanese bonus tracks, European bonus tracks, and American bonus tracks. It's going it's to be fantastic. Now, um, <laughs> in the live set, the the uh, the band, the good old White Snake, haven't played a song called "Dancing Girls" in about thirty years. What do I have to do to convince you guys to add that at least one night so I can have a YouTube video of it? Oh man, well, you know, you got to talk to David, number one. I mean, and that's probably the only one, actually. You just got to talk to David again, dude. See, I mean, you need to keep working on this rapport with him. That's right. I mean, David's really nice and he asks us about the set list, you know, so what do you think of that? But really, the answer is pretty much yes already. <laughs> you know, it's like when, when he's saying, like, hey, how about this? And then, you know, he's pretty much put a lot of thought into it and went, like, this, um, this is going to be really good. So you got to get your song into him, man. Yeah, see, and I have this uh, Twitter direct message rapport, so I'm going to have to work that. But uh, speaking of work, Jeff Tate is on the Operation Mindcrime 30th anniversary tour. You, my friend, are a Queensryche fan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, absolutely, man. I I was in junior high when the EP came out, you know, and uh, so I've been with them since Queen of the Reich, you know, with, with Jeff's... Uh, Jeff's opening scream on there, you know, which was emulated by just about every singer for about uh, five years there. Right. I think. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what do you, I, I wore the EP out. I wore out the warning after that. I wore out rage for order. And of course I, I wore out mind crimes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I love Queens, right? That's great stuff. So, so quickly talk to me about that mind crime one, because it's funny, you know, rage for order and empire and, and, they all billboard charted higher than Mind Crime, but when you ask somebody about Queens, right, they go, "That's the album. That's the well, one that changed wait, is the that scene." Correct? That I, is I correct. I bet Empire did, but are you sure about Rage for Order charted yes. higher than Mind Crime? Yes, Rage for Order. Really? Uh, yes, Rage for Order hit number forty-seven on Billboard, and um, Mind Crime only. Um, yeah, that's right. Mind Crime only got up to number fifty, and. I actually speak. Mm. I spoke to Jeff about this during the interview, and I had I, I pulled up the Billboard numbers. Yes, but of course, you know, Billboard numbers don't really mean much in the sense that if you look at Kiss, for example, they have five top ten charting albums. Would you like to know which ones they are? Revenge, Sonic Boom, Monster, Love Gun, and I forget what the fifth one is. But it, it just goes to show that. Mm. Where where you chart depends on what how many albums were. So when Rage for Order came out, the music industry must have been selling X amount. And then by the time Operation Mindcrime came out, and now you're competing against the Def Leppards and the Bon Jovis and stuff, it it 
got a little harder to break into the top hundred and top fifties yet, but, but rage for order. Yeah. Mm, Wow. That's amazing. Well, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that mind crime was going to be huge. I mean, when I first heard it, it was recorded really, really well for an album coming from that era as well. Great production, you know, great, great sounding record. And that definitely, uh, I mean, I like, I like the dinginess of like the warning too, you know, where it sounds, it fit in kind of with the, the, the dark, content of the, the songwriting but uh mind crime was just sort of i think that perfect storm it's like rush with moving pictures or something you know where you hear it and you know that's like going to be their the 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 album that defines them uh so i think all, it all came together for them with that record I'm trying to think i know that um mind crime was rep- uh, recorded at the studio in Morin heights where of course rush did some of their stuff and the police did some of oh, their wow. stuff okay. and april wine and moving pictures and i'm looking at it here right now ah Morin heights the studio in Morin heights so there you go two albums that you that you just name checked were both recorded in the same studio so there you go wow how about that wow. so there you go Maybe i need to record up there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, well, maybe, but unfortunately, they the owners abandoned it years and years ago. And and um, Neil Peart actually, if you go on YouTube, he did a whole video series of how it was abandoned and it's been left to to basically the raccoons to chew apart. It's it's tragic. Oh gosh. Yeah. It's, okay. Well, it's bummer, bummer, bitch. It's it's a total um, bummer. But I mean, you had Cat Stevens, Bee Gees. I'm just looking at Nazareth, well, you know Chicago. You are truly the most knowledgeable dude in the scene. That's that's amazing that you're like, oh, and by the way, it's being chewed apart by raccoons right now, Joel. So it you is. can't record there. You can't. You can't. No, but <laughs> but it's also. I mean, it, Morin Heights, Quebec, is from me probably about an hour, forty five minutes, an hour away. So we're we're. We're, we all know that sort of the greatest studio in the world for the 80s where the police and they just left it to. And it's like, really? Anyway, I'll send you I'll send you the YouTube link later to, to check out. But while we're okay. checking out stuff, let us check out Jeff Tate talking about Operation Mindcrime. He talks about the genesis of the album, uh, where he's going in the future and, of course, the 30th anniversary tour. So here, without further ado, the one, the only and I will say this singer extraordinaire. Jeff Tate. We are speaking with a singer Jeff Tate, uh, uh, formerly of Queensryche. Jeff, great, great pleasure to uh, to speak with you, and um, we're we're going to talk about the Operation Mindcrime 30th anniversary U.S. tour dates, which I'm very excited about. Hopefully, there will be a few more or a few added in Canada, uh, which is always important. <laughs> Just because you live there. <laughs> correct. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's, but you know what? I've, I've seen you a few times, uh, you know, doing the solo thing and the bands that you've put together, uh, whether it's with Kelly or Tishy or have always really, or Simon have always really, really delivered the, the goods. And so, yeah, I, I want to see you again. <laughs> that, that seems like a reasonable request, right? <laughs> it's reasonable, yeah. I love Canada. I love going to Canada. In fact, I'm I'm going on a motorcycle holiday sometime this summer. I believe it's in July. Um, up from Montreal, up to, is it the Gaspé Peninsula? Yep, the Gaspé uh, Peninsula. Those, yeah, I'm going to go up to there with a, a friend of mine and uh, who knows the area really well. So I'm excited about that because I have never done that on a motorcycle before. I bet the scenery is amazing. 
It really is, especially if you if you follow along the St. Lawrence Seaway. And, and mm-hmm. I know people that are listening to this in the States have no clue what we're talking about. But, of course, you know, you follow the seaway all the way up and you see the belugas and you see all that stuff. It's it's just spectacular. I mean, it really is. So, so good. Well, hopefully when you get to Montreal, we, we can do lunch or supper or something. But uh, I do want to yeah. talk. Yeah, that'd be fun. I, want, I do want to talk about Operation Mindcrime because... You know, a lot of bands put out a lot of albums, and not many albums retain the attention or the fan interest after 30 years, much less after 30 months in some cases. So uh, I want to go back to the beginning. Rage for Order. We're we're, we're going before. Uh, Peaks at number 47 on the Billboard 200 chart. What was sort of the, the band's sort of reaction or impressions or feelings going into the recording sessions for Operation Mindcrime? Does the record company come to you with a number 47 album and say, way to go, guys? Or do they come to you and say, hmm, boy, you really need to do better? Um, what, was, what was sort of the mindset going into it? Were you under pressure or was it like, no, go do what you go do? Um, well, you know, I, I particularly never felt under pressure from being on EMI records, uh, you know, they never came to me or, or to the band as far as I knew and, and pressured us into anything at that time. It was more or less, you know, they figured their job was to sell what we made, you know? And so they were just trying to do their best to, uh, you know, put the, the, the music out there and try to follow some sort of loose marketing plan because, you know, in the end of the day, nobody really knows what they're doing. You know, they just put stuff out and some things click with the public and other things don't. And some things have a delayed reaction, like Operation Minecraft had a, a delayed reaction with the public. You know, it was out a year before it really, uh, as they say, took off, you know. Yep. So and honestly, uh, I've never really been interested or followed sales, you know, I just figure they're going to happen and, you know, it, there's nothing really much I can do about it. It's sort of a thing that, that happens. And, uh, you know, my, my job is really to, to make the music and that's kind of what I focus on. So I, I never got into worrying about chart positions or even, I, you, you could ask me to this day. And I, I, in fact, when you said it, I didn't even know that Rage for Order peaked at 47 on the Billboard chart. It did. <laughs> I never knew that, yeah. <laughs> well, well, then, interestingly, though, Operation Mindcrime only came in at 50, so there you go. But, but okay, so I, I do want to step on the Operation Mindcrime stuff, but since you talked about you don't worry about the chart, you, you've always struck me as being the pure artist or, or even more the artiste, if you want, because – when you look at the album you did in 2002, the Jeff Tate and then Kings and Thieves and some of the, the, the later day Queensryche stuff, you never chased trends. You never seemed, and I don't mean this in a, in, in a bad way, but you didn't seem to, to, to care about, no, not care. What's the word I'm looking for? You always did what, what you thought the music should be. You didn't worry about musical trends or, or singles. Um, talk to me about how you've always approached music and, and, that incredible freedom that you've always written what you think is the right song for you at that time. And, and just your approach to, to putting out new music and, and not worrying about everything else. Well, I just don't know what else to do, Mitch. <laughs> Honestly, I just kind of, uh, you know, go with the moment and, you know, what feels right. I, I'm not interested in competing musically with anybody. 
or any band or any artist. I, I don't think music is a competition and uh, I don't put myself in that position ever. So I just, you know, write what comes to me and what I'm interested in. And hopefully, you know, that'll connect with people as much as it connects with myself, you know, what I, what I like, you know, but I've always approached it that way. I've never been picking the single for the, the new album. I've never been part of that. I've never picked a t-shirt design. Um, I'm just not into or understanding of, or have the patience with any kind of marketing. (laughs) Uh, And I fully understand it. So, so let me go back to then operation mind crime. So after uh, rage is over and done, what were the writing sessions like for Operation Mindcrime? Because we, we've spoken before about how you saw, sat in a bar in Montreal called the Saint-Sulpice and you watched all these characters. But were you on a mission to write uh, the album and, and needed an inspiration and that happened to be it by, by, by serendipity? Or, or did you just sort of, uh, you know, did the record company say, we want you to run off or, or the band say and, and write a concept album? what was sort of the the thought going into the next album in terms of rage what was a concept album what you sat down to write or was a concept album what came out of the writing if you know what i mean yeah i see your point well i had been wanting to do a, a full-blown album concept for since the beginning of the band i grew up in that era of you know the 1960s and 70s music i was so into you know, the, the albums like Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and Close to the Edge, Tales of Topographic Oceans, you know, all the Pink Floyd's uh, story albums. I'm so into it. And I kept wanting to get my band into that sort of presentation. And if you look at our first two albums, The Warning and Rage Forder, we were definitely moving in a thematic fashion, you know. And so uh, in the back of my mind, I always said, I was always looking for something to write about, looking for subject matter. And, and I found myself in that, in that bar, you know, in Montreal and the the characters were there. All I had to do is pull out my notepad and describe them, you know, and that started the ball rolling and the story started happening in my head and writing it all out. I, I, uh, I went to uh, the corner to pick up some milk uh, on my way home and uh, saw this church across the street, went in, to get out of the rain and just check it out. And um, there was a choir practicing and uh, candles burning. And man, the notebook came out and I had Sister Mary, you know, uh, going. And by the time I got back to my house, um, I'd written the riffs and the guitar parts for the the title track, Operation Mindcrime, and recorded those when I got back to the house. And uh, it just started a a six-month roll you know, for that record that uh, just didn't end until we sent it into the record company and they were listening to it, you know, scratching their heads, trying to figure out what it was we were doing, you know? Yeah, because obviously record companies want singles and you're presenting them an entire piece. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, what do we do with that? Now, in terms of the writing process, is that still how you do it today? Do you, you know, get on the bus and go on tour and then sit in a cafe in Vienna and and look at people and say, hey, has the songwriting process changed or does it change from album to album? Do you approach it differently? How how, how do you sort of qualify your writing style? Yeah, it's it's a lot of note-taking when I'm out and about, uh, either 
you know, with a notepad or nowadays I have a, a phone, you know, it's, it's so handy with no notepads, email photographs, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm constantly writing notes to myself and then I get to where I can, you know, musically work. Uh, I, I have a portable recording studio I take with me at all times on the road so I can go to the bus or the hotel room and, and work or I'm at home and I can work. And so I, I transfer all those notes into what I'm doing, you know, uh, musically and, uh, and the, the process starts, you know, that way. And so in a sense, the process is the same. It's just the technology has changed now. So I don't have to wait four months, you know, to get the ideas down, uh, recorded. It can happen pretty quickly, you know, but getting back to what you were saying about the record company a minute ago, it, it's kind of interesting because when we handed them this record, they really didn't know what to do with it. Um, and, and we said, well, this is a concept record. We'd like to, you know, sell it like that. So any ideas? And uh, they said, well, you know, it's our job to find the singles in this record. Do you guys have a, any singles in mind? And um, some of the ones that were suggested were, uh, you know, Breaking the Silence and uh, I Don't Believe in Love. And they chose Sweet Sister Mary as a single, which is a 10-minute song. And they wanted to, you know, edit it all down to three minutes. And um, and I finally stepped in and said, look, you know, there are so many other songs on this record that we don't have to edit a heck of a lot, you know. And why don't you leave that one alone? Yeah, it's cool. It's a cool song, but it doesn't need to be on the radio, you know. Other songs can be on the radio and act as commercials for this. So they took my advice and they chose Eyes of a Stranger instead, which didn't require a lot of editing. Right. But still a seven-minute song almost. Yeah, it was still a seven-minute song, <laughs> but we, we could we could cut the ending off and it still made musical sense without, you know, um, you know, uh, bastardizing it, you know. Right. So that worked out well. But still, you know, it was a year before the album really took off, and it took off because of a video for Eyes of a Stranger that, that came out on MTV. And man, once that video hit, we just saw the sales go through the roof. It was it was phenomenal, you know, watching TV work like that. You know, the power of television was amazing. It really was, and it's funny that you mentioned singles because I I would have always I would have gone with like Breaking the Silence or I Don't Believe in Love. Um, after it broke and the video comes out and, and you've got this success going and, you know, that's, that's when I discovered the band because all of a sudden, you know, much music, which has these Canadian content rules. And so in order to break through those rules, if you're not Brian Adams, you had to have the hot single. You know, that's why we didn't see a lot of Rat and we didn't see a lot. Um, what was it like when you when you approached Empire? Did you want to say to yourself, maybe we should do this again and get the, the part two done right now? Because if you look at Empire, it seems to be more singles friendly. Um, did the record company come to you and say at this point, okay, now you've done your thing, now try it our way? Or, or how did it evolve into Empire? No, the, the record company never really had a lot of say-so, to, you know, as far as the creation of the music goes. Um, the only time that they ever stepped in was on our first album, The Warning, when we were... I think $300,000 over budget. And they came in and said, stop, <laughs> you know, the madness has to end right now. We're taking you guys off this project. We're taking control of it. And we're bringing our own people in to mix it. And, you know, you guys gave you a shot and you went way over budget. So you're, you're done, you know, and we swore to ourselves, we'd never get in that situation again, where we got our art taken away from us before it was finished, you know? 
So we're always after that very conscientious about budgets and, and being, you know, deadlines and that kind of thing. But um, funny enough, I, I ran into uh, uh, one of the, the major executives of EMI when we were on EMI at a, an event a couple of years ago. And I, I was talking about the success of Empire. And I said, what, what was it that uh, just fueled the success of that album? You know, and, and he said, well, from our end, it was really just, it stuck. You know, we threw it up against the wall. It stuck with the public. And we recognized that it was an album that had legs. So we, we were willing to put a lot of promotional money into it. And that's what we did. We just backed it because it was already moving. You know, we just got out of, got out of the way and let the record have its run, which it did. You know, they had six singles on that record and it was phenomenally uh, successful, you know, but it was a different time then. It was a different world. It was a different record company. It was a different industry at the time where they had, six million dollars to put into a promotional budget to sell that record you know nowadays you're lucky if you get sixty dollars in a promotional budget i know i was just talking to an artist the other day and he said i signed her eight record deal with so-and-so label and i went that's great and it's, it's one of the classic guys from the 80s and i said that's great he goes yeah they're paying me ten thousand and i went for eight albums <laughs> it's like it's like excuse me is, shouldn't that be like the monthly rent not the anyway yeah no it's a very different place um years ago when when you and the other party were having their things you held on to the operation mind crime name and the ability to perform the album why was that important to you why why was the the name of this album so important and the ability to perform it in its entirety, so important that it was part of a settlement where you go, okay, you do that, but I have to have this. Um, why place so much importance on the name and the ability to perform the album? Um, well, it, it really was was my thing. You know, the album was uh, uh, really one of the the things I contributed the most to within the, the Queensryche discography. And, um, it was just something that, I don't know, it was, it was my baby, you know, it was it, from the beginning to the end. Uh, it just always has meant a lot to me, the story, the, the, uh, the music itself, uh, the presentation, everything was just, um, dear to my heart really and worth fighting for. I can agree with that. Now in the, um, sort of the, the, the press cycle for the new reality, uh, the last album. You had mentioned in interviews that this was going to be the last Operation Mind Crime album and so on and so forth. Uh, is that, mm -hmm. Does that still hold true today where you're not going to do another Operation Mind Crime album or using that name? And if not, sort of where do we go from here? I think I'll start using my own name. Okay. <laughs> I know that's a, a weird, strange concept, but I think it's about time. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Um so I'm going I'm going to do that, I think. And and I know we we've mentioned this of course in the past as well, but I always like to get an update. You you had of course previously told me as far back as like 15 years ago that you wanted to get an Operation Mind Crime script going and get it into some kind of movie thing. And now we have, of course, a lot more options with Amazon Prime and Netflix. There's, it's not as complicated to, to get a project going. Does that still have an interest to you? Because as a fan, seeing it represented visually, 
would just be, I don't know if the word's mind-blowing, but I, I'd have a super great interest in seeing what you would come up with. Yeah, actually, that's that's already kind of happened and is happening, and there's uh, probably going to be some news about that, I would say, uh, this fall uh, regarding the, the album and uh, a different sort of format it's going to be presented in. That that would be uh, that'd be great actually. I can't wait to see that. So, um, where do we go from here in terms of new albums? Because New Reality, of course, came out last year. Um, where are we in terms of well, the end of last year? So only like about six months ago. Uh, where are we in terms of the next new album? And and since you step out and go with your own name, uh, musically, sort can you sort of get step away from the hard rock thing if if that interests you to step away? Well, you know, Mitch, I've, I've got 19 albums now. Yep. That's a heck of a lot of music. Yep. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't leave it at 19. I'm going to have to leave it on an even number, I think. Uh, so I've got a couple things I'm working on, but I'm not really in a, a major hurry to release any, any new music at the moment. I'm really interested in touring, and uh, I have plans to finish out the rest of this year touring. I've, I've been touring since January, and... Uh, I'm uh, going to continue on to the end of the year. And then I'm going to take a break at the beginning of the year. And then I have a a, um, a tour I'm going to do with uh, a lovely band from Germany who I've become very enamored with called Aventasia. I'm touring with them um, starting in March of next year. So that'll be a real interesting journey, I think. <laughs> well, in fact, it will be. So, so uh, talk to me about working with uh, Tobias because... He's managed to put together a very impressive t- discography, having you guest on it and, and uh, you know, the, the former Kiss guys, Bruce Kulik and, and Eric Singer. Who's still, uh, talk to me about that project and sort of what attracts you to it and, and why, wanna be, why do you want to be part of it? Well, um, I got into it first because of the music. Um, Tobias sent me a song out of the blue. I'd never met him, never talked to him. He sent me a song and said, I'm Tobias Samet and this is what I do and I want you to listen to this song and tell me is this something that you can relate to and uh, I put the song on and immediately you know I was comfortable with it because it's classic music classical music based uh, which is where my you know first musical uh, inspirations came from and uh, the more I listened to it the more I pictured myself singing it and before I knew it I had it transferred into my studio and had the microphone up and I was singing away to it. And I sent it back to him with what I did. And he, he loved it and said, well, would you like to be part of my album? And I said, well, I, th- I think I would. Um, he said, well, I'm doing some shows this summer. Uh, this is last year. And why don't you come in and, um, you know, play some of these shows with us and see how you feel about it all. So I did, and I had a great time. Uh, it's a fantastic organization, great musicians, and everybody's just real easy to hang with. So um, I'm in. <laughs> and then I just fell in love with Toby. He's an amazing guy. He's just fantastic. Uh, it, to, to see what he's done and put together this incredible, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's a thing. You know, it's a, it's a project that has all these guest players, and it continues to, to do well and to uh, uh, it keeps changing people around and having different players come in and out. And I, I love that concept, and I love working with a number of different people. And I just actually got back 
uh, week and a half ago from Germany. I went over to uh, record uh, some new songs with him and Sasha, who's uh, producing it. And uh, it's really cool. It's a new album that's coming out. Um, I guess it's uh, February or March it's, it comes out. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that because the stuff he's put out in the past has been, um, well, spectacular. I really, that's the word for it. Um, and, and I know yeah, that... You know what's, you know what's yeah. cool about him, I think, is that he's such a giving personality. Uh, he's completely without ego, you know, which is rare in this business. Because to, to do what we do, stand up on a stage and sing for people, you got to have a, a bit of ego there, you know. Uh, if he does have it, I don't, I've never seen it rear its head. He just gives, you know, and he invites all these incredibly talented players to play with them. And he gives them the stage and says, here, here you go. Sing the song. I'm going to stand over here while you sing it. Maybe I'll come in and harmonize with you. Or sometimes I'll be off the stage. I'm giving you complete, uh, complete freedom to, uh, take my audience and, 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 and perform, you know? And that's a, an amazing thing for somebody to be able to do that, you know? Uh, and, and I have so much respect for, for him and his viewpoint and his, his uh, vision of music is uh, very refreshing. Yeah, it really is. And, and there's another guy where you're talking about who, who's not chasing singles and who's not chasing trends. He just does what's dear to his heart. And he brings mm-hmm. in these great guests. And it just, it just turns out, I mean, every album has been... <laughs> probably better than the one preceding it. He, I don't know. He's, he's really in tune with what fans want, even though they might not admit it. And, and he just, he knows how to do it. Um, I'll finish on this today. I just want to quickly get a couple of words about the here and the now frontier album years ago. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it doesn't okay. get talked about a, a lot, but years ago I was offered a Jeff Tate interview and the record company had given me signs of the time as a CD single promo. And it was very exciting, you know, and I've always loved that album, and I've always loved songs like Chasing Blue Skies, which was a bonus track in Japan, and, you know, Hit the Black. Um, talk to me about that album and that time, because do you think it got underappreciated? What, what did, did You know, I know it was after Nirvana and so on, but you have to be proud of that album, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's better than folks will, will admit. Well, yeah, it's chock full of really, really fine songs. Um, you know, if it's overlooked, it's because it had ma- one major problem with it. And that's um, uh, t- 10 weeks after it, it came out, the record company went out of business. So right. they stopped selling, they stopped promoting, they stopped everything. In fact, we couldn't even call them on the phone. The, the phones were disconnected, <laughs> you know. So we only toured. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. It was like three weeks after the album came out. I'm sorry, I'm getting my numbers mixed up because we only toured for 10 weeks total. And that's just unheard of with Queensryche. You know, we were, we were a six to nine month touring band, you know, per cycle. Right. And we only toured 10 weeks because we just couldn't do it on our own without record company selling, you know, everything. So it was a really, uh, it was a horrible time with the band and the, not having a record company, not having anybody selling the thing. Uh, we're out there on our own, you know, trying to sell tickets without any promotion of any kind. And uh, it was a, a massive financial failure for us. And I think one of the major contributors to uh, Chris DeGarmo leaving the band at that time, he was really, I think, 
speaking for him. I, I felt like he was devastated by the whole project, which it was really important to him. That project was really his baby and he steered it and, and wrote most of the material and really was the instigator behind, behind the record and, and for it to fail so miserably, um, I think really gutted him, you know, did that sort of financial pressure resonate with the band that did, did it start putting cracks in the, in the vessel so to speak? Because I mean, it, it was to me, Operation Mindcrime, Empire, Promised Land, Here Now, and the Now Frontier. Those are my four. Those are the ones where I think that's the best material. And, and, and I mean, no disrespect to the other stuff, but those are the top. Those are the ones I'm pulling out first. Um, and so, did that have other effects, like on the entire band, not just Chris? I, I think so. Um, you know, Chris put a. And again, this is me speaking for him, and it's really not fair because I'm just guessing based upon knowing him he, he put a lot of uh, weight and a lot of importance on charts and record positions and sales numbers and things like that it meant a lot to him and and that's where we really differed he and i i, I had no idea that the record had done badly <laughs> i had no idea it didn't affect me in my in my um, uh, sphere you know of interest so i was already working on the next album you know, at that time, but, uh, it really, really affected him and, and probably some of the other guys too, because they were kind of living record to record and hoping that, you know, it did well because it'd been a while since we had a record out. Right. Well, well if you were for speaking chart positions, uh, it did finish at number 19. It peaked at 19, which was more than operation mind crime and rage for order. So couldn't have been that devastating mm-hmm. but but yeah no it, it's uh it, always a pleasure and hopefully the uh, operation mind crime tour the 30th anniversary uh will come through montreal and or ottawa um but of course it's out uh, this summer through the u.s always a pleasure to talk to you and just always a pleasure to see you live every time i've seen it or seen you uh i go away with a smile on my face and that's really what it should be all about ah good <laughs> good to know thanks mitch appreciate Abs- that Absolutely, and uh, we'll talk soon. And if you're if you're here in July, please look me up. I'll be more than happy to show you around if you need. All right, I'll keep that in mind. Take care, and thanks again for the interview. Appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you, sir. Have a good day. Bye, bye, Mitch. Bye, bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Big thank you to Jeff Tate. Do yourself a favor, and of course, check out the Operation Mindcrime 30th Anniversary Tour. It is not coming near me, but I am going to make an effort to get out to see it. Joel, uh, welcome back for our third and final installment of this uh, co-hosting experience. I certainly hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, bro. It's great to wrap with you, man. It is it is different than a long form interview, but I think we've got all the information that we needed anyway, right? <laughs> I snuck yes, it all absolutely. in there. Snuck it all in there. Um Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds, of course, was a band that was formed in the early nineties, and part of that band was a bass a bass player named Jimmy or James Ashurst. And of course, after that he went on to play with Buck Cherry. He is, of course, my final guest. You had a chance to not play with Jimmy, but you had a chance to, I guess, stand in for Izzy at one of these, uh, what is it, rock camps? Or Explain 
sort of your connection to all of this? Well, I got to play the, the GNR stuff basically right. with Adler, with Stephen right. Adler. At, uh, first time was at Rock Against MS, which is an event that uh, Nancy Sale holds in LA usually annually. And uh, then the next time was at Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, where uh, Adler was one of the headliners. I was a counselor or whatever. So, you know, going through and, and learning specifically the GNR parts, uh, it really does give you an appreciation for Slash and Izzy and how they. they played off each other and everything, uh, you know, just, they, they mesh so well. Uh, so a lot of fun and it, it's challenging to cop that because it comes more from a feel perspective than it does from a like chops perspective of, can you play fast enough or accurately enough? It's more like, no, you have to <laughs> actually kind of learn to cop the feel. So, uh, yeah, that's great stuff, man. Obviously the guns and roses, uh, obviously their success speaks for itself. Now, when we talk of guitar heroes, you know, we always mention Eddie Van Halen, blah, 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 and we mention slash all the time. Izzy's name doesn't come up as much, but when you talk to fans, they talk about Izzy being the heart and the soul of, of Guns N' Roses. H- how do you sort of, I don't want to say rate, but how do you... Well, he, he, he's Brad Whitford, right? I mean, like you throw, it's, it's like, you know, Brad Whitford to Joe Perry, right? Brad is the underappreciated guitar player in Aerosmith and all the, all the musicians know is, is really an awesome player and really is... Uh, in many ways, responsible for the sound Aerosmith. So, I mean, same deal there, man. You know, Izzy is definitely you. You can't. Uh, you definitely can't underestimate the contributions he made to um, you know music that has stood the test of time. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't at all. And now, now you know, Guns is out there and they are doing great. I've seen the Not in the Lifetime tour three times. Phenomenal every time they're doing uh, the, the shows I saw. I think they were they were doing like thirty four songs or something like completely ridiculous. But wow, H- have you had a chance to see Guns N' Roses on this on on the last sort of? Not I haven't this- seen the t- haven't seen the tour, but just clips and things like that. And uh, you know, I'm buddies with Richard Fortas, and he's you know Richard is just killing it, man. He's the real deal. He's not just like you know let me cop Izzy's thing. Richard is just. You know, he, he's got it across the board in terms of uh, just having the right attitude and the right heart and soul for that band and to be a part of it. So I'm super happy for him that he's a part of it and he's just a killing player. So, uh, yeah. you know, hey, tip of the cap to him. You know, it's, it's, things didn't come together business-wise, obviously, for Izzy and those guys on that tour. So it is what it is. And I'm super happy for Richard that he got that break. Oh, so so am I. I think Richard is great. And in fact, before Slash and Duff came back and he was out there with DJ Ashburn and stuff, I really thought Richard was the star of that lineup. He really delivered a, a swagger and an attitude and a look. And just what he does with his arms at that, what is it, like, you know, bicycle spin, whatever move you want to call it. He's, he's got the vibe, man. He's got the GNR vibe. He definitely feels yeah. like it feels like a, a GNR member, doesn't he? he? He really does. And what I've noticed or what I – how can I put this? What I appreciate is that now that Slash and Duff are back, first of all, he plays off of them just wonderfully. It's just – it's it's all in the pocket. It's It's exactly – but he also stepped back and said, okay, this is not my gig in terms of the spotlight. And the spotlight's back on Slash and Duff. And so he's just a, a complete team player. When right when it was time for him to shine, he shone. And now that it's time for him to let the other guy shine. And he's, he's just a team player. And I, I love, I love, love Richard. And I, and I love Frank Ferrer, too, on drums. I think 
I think he got, he adds a great swing. He he does what Steven and uh, Matt could do, and and adds his own little um, flavor to it. So it's a great band. It's a great great band. You know, I, I think last time I, it was uh, I, I forget some of our crew, some of the White Snake crew uh, uh, works for Guns and Roses as well. So I get the reports, but it, it's one of the most successful rock tours of all time. Um, what the, what they're they're doing right now, so that's that's pretty remarkable. So good for those guys. Really is, and and the length of it too. Everybody said when they were going to go do Coachella and the Vegas days, whatever, they said, oh, it's going to be over before the month of April's out. You're going to see three shows, and it'll all explode. And here we are, going on to almost two years later. So it's eighteen months, eighteen nineteen months later. And it's just getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And they're adding new songs to the set list or, you know, they, they started doing uh, the Velvet Revolver stuff. And th- there just doesn't seem to be any ad. It's, yeah, how about that? That's crazy, right? Oh, but I thought rock and roll was dead, Mitch. I thought rock and roll was dead. No, yeah. it's, it, that's awesome, dude. Anything that helps to keep the, the rock scene moving uh, loud and proud, you know, I think that's awesome. And Guns N' Roses certainly is, is carrying the torch, man. Yeah, and, and, and I'll just finish on the, the Rock is Dead thought. Uh, I was talking to Charlie Benente the other day, and that tour with Slayer, Anthrax Slayer, had just played in front of a crowd of 26,000 the same night where Def Leppard was playing in, I think it was Erie, Pennsylvania. They had 27,000. Guns N' Roses are regularly getting 40,000 or more. So, oh yeah, Rock is just limping along. It's, it's, it's such a pity. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. And 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 you know what? Listen, you're the foreigner White Snake tour. You're playing easily to eighteen, twenty thousand each and every night on that tour. So, oh yeah, you must all be suffering. How, how do you how do you survive? How do you put up with it? Yeah, it's it's you know it's not easy. We uh you know we we just believe our own hype a lot. No no I don't know. It's uh it's it's a wonderful thing, man. For me, you know I I never really. Uh, foresaw actually getting the opportunity to do all the things I'm getting to do right now. I just kind of grew up in an area where maybe you weren't supposed to get out and, and become successful and do this. I didn't grow up in LA or New York or anything like that, where it's like, sure, put together a band and be famous, you know? So for me, I just always feel like I'm playing with house money that, uh, <laughs> you know, where I've, where I've gotten to is pretty amazing. And I'm just trying to appreciate every step of the way. Yeah. And, and I'm just looking at your tour dates. I mean, Jones beach, uh, Blossom Music Center, DTE. I mean, those those must be the intimate gigs on 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 the, on the summer tour, right? Uh, playing. In yeah, summer. I mean, it's <laughs> obviously uh, it's a it's a great night of music. So I'm thrilled to be a, a small part of it, man. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get over to the one and only Jimmy Ashurst. He's of course talking about working with Izzy Stradlin and uh, his days with Buck Cherry. Here is the one, the only. Jimmy James Two Fingers Ashurst. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Before you cut to that, it strikes me that we're at the end of this year, Mitch, and I want to say, uh, what are we going to have to do to get you on the Monsters of Rock Cruise in 2019? That is the question, my friends. Are we going to run like a formal campaign for this? <laughs> well, is that what's going to go down here? Listen, I, I would love... I would love to go. In fact, I would love to be in the Monsters of Rock cruise. That is like a dream to to get on there and just be with all the bands. And you know, hey, if I have to be on duty and do some some work to earn my keep, I'm I'm happy to do that too. Quite frankly, but uh, I don't know how 
How do we make that happen? All right. Now, well, here's the way I see it, right? The more, the merrier, right? I know we got Eddie Tronk and Don Jameson on there and, and Luke uh, Carl or all killer hosts. But I mean, you got a successful cruise, but the more exposure it gets, the better, right? You have you on there covering as well. It's just going to make the cruise that much bigger and better, right? Yep. So that's, uh, you know, just my, my personal take on it. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to talk to Larry Moran about it. Oh, that would be great. And and by the way, I'd like to just want to say those guys, Don Jameson, Luke, Carl, Eddie, much respect for them because they have helped keep this scene alive for so many years. And how can you deny their importance to, to – I mean, you know, it's great to have David Coverdale out there and, and Mick Jones. They, they keep the scene alive by playing, but those guys have kept it alive by talking about it. So a lot, I have a, just a lot of respect for them. Yeah, me too, man. I mean, I, look, I owe a whole lot to Eddie Trunk for having me on that metal show the couple times he did. And, um, you know, that changed my career for the, uh, the better. You know, yeah. I, I wouldn't be in Whitesnake without – um, being on that that show, so I mean it's uh, it, it really is. I owe a lot to Eddie, so total all respect, all said with respect. I just want to add you into the mix. You know what I yeah. mean? I, there's no reason not to make it bigger, and that's all, bro. And you know, I, I owe a lot to you as well for the exposure and the ties I have me on the show. So just trying to spread the love, man. That's all. Yeah, a little a little a little Canadian bacon on the side wouldn't hurt. Excellent. Good analogy, my friend. See? That, that, that'd be great. <laughs> so uh, with that, let us get back to uh, Jimmy Ashurst, of course, formerly of Buck Cherry, and Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds. Here is the one, the only, a Juju Hound himself, Jimmy Ashurst. We are speaking with bassist James Ashurst. Some of you may know him as, of course, Jimmy Ashurst, or uh, what is it? Two Fingers as well. Is that is that correct? <laughs> it, it's been correct for like uh, 30 years or so, but um, <laughs> hi, first of all, hi, Mitch. Um, but uh, second, um, the, uh, the that nickname came about in sort of a funny way. At least it was funny to, to me. Right. Um, the uh, uh, you, um, journalist in the United Kingdom, Mr. Paul Elliott, who is also um, the uh, – legendary biographer, Guns N' Roses biographer. I think he came out with a Guns N' Roses book, which is, um, you know, amazingly uh, well-researched. Uh, it came out, um, I think it should be available you guys up in Canada. I don't know if it arrived here in the States, but someone sent me a copy of it finally. But um, that came about during an interview I did with him back when I was playing with the Juju Hounds in London. And, um, he came to the uh, hotel and we sort of had a, you know, a few after a few um, beverages and some pleasant conversation. He asked me about my last name and remarked that it wasn't very rock and roll and whether I'd ever considered having a nickname. And he he's the one like just threw out two fingers, like such as two fingers. And and so I, I relayed that story later. I mean, I thought it was hilarious. And I said, no, of course, I hadn't considered that because Ashurst is my name. And um, and. I wasn't much, uh, you know, interested in having a nickname. But when I came back and relayed that story to Chris Robinson, when um, I was doing some work uh, on the Black Crows record of Mark, I was playing mandolin on that. And he thought it was hilarious. So he kept crediting me on things that I subsequently did with him as two fingers as a joke. And um, and somehow that sort of, you know, followed me around for quite some time. <laughs> But it was never my choice, really, you know. 
That's that's funny. Now, of course, uh, folks who who have been following the uh, the Juju Hounds and, and Izzy and Buck Cherry and stuff know you as Jimmy, but you're also sort of transitioning out of that one, and and you're going now with James. Just uh, sort of talk to me about just that, and then we'll get into all these great bands and great albums. But talk to me about transitioning that out and just going with the name James instead of Jimmy. Well, I wasn't really intentional. Um, I was just sort of, you know, I'm, a, you know, in the technology age, I'm on a number of different platforms, and, um, you know, I just wanted to be a little bit harder to find. <laughs> so, so I started using that one, which of course is on my ID. So, and I'm all grown up now. So, you know, like, you know, Ricky Schroeder went to be Rick Schroeder, and he became more, you know, dignified. <laughs> so, I sort of one of those two. Right, it's like at some point you're no longer Bobby. You got to be Bob. Um, so, 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 talk to me just quickly first, uh, because we know that you left Buck Cherry a few years ago. What are you sort of currently doing? Where a fan who wants to see your bass playing, who wants to see or your mandolin playing, for that matter, but what are you currently up to? What are some of some of the projects that are keeping you busy right now? You know, oddly, um, well, not oddly, actually, um, I've always been a um, a committed band guy, um, as opposed to a, a hired, um, musician, you know, to play in other people's bands. I like the, the feeling of being, you know, in a little gang of guys, you know, that are all sort of, you know, us against the world kind of a thing. And, um, and that I think, uh, have, those have always been the healthiest and, uh, most productive relationships um I've, I've i've experienced and so um as a result it becomes uh you know difficult to you know those those situations are very very difficult to find and so um instead of being you know the guy you know who gets called to sort of go on a tour with these guys and then those other guys uh next week um i can go for years without being in a band um, and that's sort of what's been happening since uh, my departure from Buck Cherry. Um, and I really don't know if I'm going to find another one. You know, there really aren't. I mean, I'm looking out into the world and I'm not seeing, uh, you know, a lot of uh, bands that, that operate that way uh, in these days. You know, it seems um, much better for the founding members of the band to be able to interchange musicians and um you know, use other guys or have a new lineup or whatever. And in in my view, uh, that tends to also dilute a little bit of the audience enthusiasm, you know, um, when people get used to uh, certain members and, um, you know, they like the, the band aesthetic and they like the live show and everything's working. Um, I think when you start to replace those guys, you tend to lose a lot of people. Um, so having said that, I'm unemployed. <laughs> currently and I'm really not working on anything and uh, I'm really bad at the sort of uh, self-promotion that seems to be required these days in order to you know um, secure any potential um, you know jobs yeah, out right. there yeah 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 so um, I've just never been great at that so I'm you know pretty much unemployed and broke a lot of the time if you go back over my entire career of 35 years you know well we are in, in a second because we're going to talk about the broken homes we're going to talk about of course the the izzy album and and buck cherry 
Um, but I'm just going to fast forward to, to a little bit closer to the end. You have done some work with uh, Ginger Wildheart. Um, just talk to me just real quick about Ginger and, and some of the work you did with him because uh, the Wildhearts and Ginger, for some reason, just never caught the eye of the American and the Canadian audiences and yet very much revered in the UK. Uh, what was it like doing a little bit of work with him and, and cause he really is rock and roll, right? I mean, he, he absolutely is. And he's one, he's like a unicorn these days. You know, there aren't guys like that anymore. And, um, the ones that do exist, um, I'll, 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 you know, this I can go on a little bit if you don't mind. You can edit this. I, out. I don't mind at all. In fact, but, you know, I, I I did mention at the top that we we that we we prefer thirty minutes. But if we if this goes two hours, it'll be two hours. I mean, don't hold <laughs> yourself back. Do not yeah, hold yeah, yourself I, back. I, I, I won't. Trust me. <laughs> but but um, Ginger actually, the Wild Hearts going back to ninety two on the first uh, Juju Hounds tour of the United Kingdom, uh, the Wild Hearts. I believe were in their inception phase. They were just sort of, uh, you know, becoming a force uh, to be reckoned with in the UK. And they had, um, uh, through whatever, whatever industry machination had gone on to arrange this, but they were they were scheduled to support the band for our entire UK run. And um, the first show we did, um, Izzy and I sort of uh, saw them as being a little bit more hard rock and um, than what we were sort of trying to do, you know, at the time. And um, and we felt uh, that perhaps it wasn't uh, a great situation for us since we had a lot of acoustic songs. And Izzy was, you know, sort of trying to get away from that, you know, metal sort of hard you know, slamming guitars kind of a sound. And, um, you know, we had mandolins, as, as I said, and acoustic guitars on a couple of songs and all that jazz. And so, um, you know, uh, they were uh, kicked off of the tour. <laughs> and um, But uh, throughout the tour, these guys, they ended up doing the tour anyway, sort of following us around and picketing out in front. And saying how much, you know, how we kicked them off because they were better than us. And I thought that was amazing. You know, I thought that was really committed and that these guys were, um, you know, rebels, man. And so I just thought that took a lot of balls. And so after that, I didn't I hadn't spoken to to um, Ginger in many, many years. And um, it wasn't until I was touring in Buck Cherry that I saw that he had moved uh, briefly to New York City. And so I knew we were heading there and I. Um, I reintroduced myself to him. I wasn't sure if he'd remember. But um, since that moment, you know, we ended up meeting at the hotel and having a bunch of drinks and stuff. And and since that moment, we've been, you know, uh, close friends. And I'm, I've been fortunate to have been invited by him to do a couple of his uh, legendary birthday gigs that happen on December 17th in London and are just huge. I mean, he's like Bruce Springsteen is to an American audience. You know, I mean, you've got the entire crowd singing the lyrics and to every song and it's just an incredible catalog. So um, that was a uh, just a funny little sort of uh, turn of events, how we um, we ended up being uh, being being close friends. And in fact, just a couple of years ago, he came out to Los Angeles and stayed with me in my place here for a bit and uh, we did a little bit of recording for one of his um i believe it was for the 
the fan club thing. We did a couple of songs. We got to the studio finally, and it was a blast. I mean, the guy is just a gifted, gifted, gifted songwriter and lyricist. And uh, he's just, but again, man, you know, uh, speaking to your point about the, 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 the reality for them in the United States, um, it's always been my view that uh, guys like that, you know, are, See, in, within the American music business, he would be deemed, you know, hard to work with, you know, and there are a lot of us guys who have been sort of saddled with that over the years. And um, what that means doesn't necessarily mean you're hard to work with. It means that you disagree with people sometimes. And Ginger's a very smart guy and he's, you know, and he knows what he wants and um, and he's a rebel. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult. But, you know, um, these guys are geniuses. And without guys like that, you're not going to have a lot of change happening because if everyone's doing exactly, you know, the, the politically correct thing and doing what everybody else is doing and being easy to work with, you're probably not going to end up with a lot of good stuff coming out at the end. You know, you know what I mean? Everything's going to start to sound the same, I'm afraid. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate the fact that he did that sort of protesting because that's what Ginger does. I mean, he's, he, I don't want to say he's pissing vinegar, but he, he stands up and he's outspoken. And, you know, I know people in the media, especially back in the day, he, he went in and destroyed a, whatever the classic rock or whatever magazine or metal hammer, whatever it was. <laughs> and he's just done it his way all the time. And some of the music that the wild hearts have put out, um, especially must be destroyed or the, uh, F H U K album or UQ, I guess it was called to, yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. man, it's it, like that. You know, if you go back throughout history, guys like that are the ones who affect change. You know, it was um, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you the, the Guns N' Roses guys for for an example. You know, I don't yeah. think that that behavior today would be tolerated within the industry. And it was barely tolerated then. And so, um, you know, they the industry just didn't really have a choice at a certain point because that was a movement that came out of the a very active Los Angeles scene at that time. And so they the industry sort of responds to the you know, you can't you can't ignore when people are doing shows and there's you know, they're they're sold out night after night and there's, you know, riots in the streets. You can't ignore that they're having some effect. And so that, you know, can can lead to, you know, recording contracts and then saturation globally and all that stuff. But um, I'm afraid that's much, that's become much more difficult these days. Um, you, uh, you're not, you're never going to affect change without the rebels, you know, without the guys who are difficult to work with, you know, with every, with every um, uh, music scene the, that used to happen regionally, you know, we'd have Seattle, we'd have Los Angeles, New York, you know, in, in this country. And um, those were regional scenes. And, you know, we're all aware of the Los Angeles one, which was followed by the Seattle one, you know, and uh, Atlanta has produced the scenes in the past. And, um, you know, going back to Motown and, you know, all of these wonderful American music cities, um, whenever uh, the rebels showed up, you know, um, there was a change. There was a, 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 a quantum shift in everything and that includes um art and fashion and um every movement from every one of those cities has produced exactly that and um 
without the strength of those scenes, I, I'm I'm afraid. You know, I haven't I haven't seen a, a, a shift in in fashion or a, a shift that covers all of the um, art forms in quite some time. You know, but that was that was sort of how it went back then. Yeah, it really was. Now, so. Uh, let me start going through through the discography and the bands and the people that you've worked with. Uh, of course, uh, you are on, on one of my all-time favorite albums, which is Buck Cherry's 15. I think that, that that album, especially the Japanese version with Pump It Up and um, Back in the Day, are just slamming. I mean, it's fantastic. But let's go before that. The Broken Homes. Um, you got had a chance to work with producer Andy Johns, and I think we all know who Andy Johns has worked with over his years. Um, talk to me about working with Andy and what that was like. And, and does he bring the experience of Andy Johns into the recording thing and said, Hey, when I was recording with this band and when I was recording, uh, do you learn from him? Does, or does he say, okay, we're, we're doing something fresh. Talk, talk to me sort of about, about that and, and, and uh, working and with Andy. Andy is one of those guys, man. He's, he's in that club. He's a rebel. You know, he's a character. He's a personality. Um, you're not, you know, in the studio or out of the studio. You you can't be within earshot of Andy Johns and not get the stories and not get the personality. I think when we were looking for a producer, um, Craig and I and the, the, the singer Michael Doman met up, were, were invited to Andy's house up in the Hollywood Hills here, and um, and he. Uh, didn't say a word in the beginning, but he had us, you know, put on 10 gallon cowboy hats and strap on um, holsters with 45 calibers in them to play poker, you know, and then um, and he, you know, and the night sort of went on from there. We were playing poker with this maniac and I think he managed to stab himself in the foot that night. All kinds of stuff went on. But, you know, again, <laughs> he's one of those guys <clears throat> that, um, uh, with all of that experience and all of that, you know, um, uh, eccentricity, I suppose it added, um, so much more to the recording experience than just his, um, technical prowess. You know, you felt you were in the company of a guy who, um, you know, was committed and he was there to, 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 you know, to do a great job, but, you know, just being around the guy had a, had a certain energy about it. And, um, you know, he was quite a bit, older than that. We were, we were kids. And, um, and so, you know, it was, it was quite a, quite a huge personality to be around and, uh, very, very, very influential on us. And of course it's recording prowess. I mean, when you, when you want to hear a, you know, a, a guitar sound, like they got on exile on main street, he would know because he was the guy who did it, you know, or Led Zeppelin four or any one of those records, you know? So, um, you could just, he could just dial it up and there, it, there it was. So it was a very, very, um, massive learning experience for us. We were very fortunate in that band to have uh, several producers of that uh, caliber. Um, Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson uh, were also involved at the beginning of an album, but they didn't wind up finishing it. I'm not sure exactly why that happened. I think it was, you know, budgetary concerns or something, but um, they were taken away from us, sadly. But uh, the, 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 the short time we did have with them was a very fruitful one. And um, we learned from that as well, which is, you know, if you're not going to learn from guys who came before you, you know, who are you going to learn from? You know, these are the masters. And, um, and uh, you know, they come from a time when, you know, recording was serious, serious business. And, 
and and you know and not only in in hunter's case it wasn't just the recording it was the arrangements of the songs and um you know just all of that wealth as a songwriter you know he brought and then mick ronson of course is mick ronson so so talk to me about you know you've got broken homes from from 86 to 90 roughly Talk to me about the challenges of, of getting a band up and running because the market was certainly open and prime and ready for those kinds of band for a rock and roll band. Why was it so difficult and why did it only last three albums? What was sort of the the misstep that didn't get you to be at that next level to to get you to a to a I don't want to say a Bon Jovi level, but but you know some sure. of those bands out there, the the Def Leppards oh, and, no. and a, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Um, well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, the We sort of came along in the Los Angeles scene a little bit earlier than that uh, whole Sunset Strip sort of hair band explosion of signings, you know, that happened. I believe um, we were one of the first bands to have been signed, uh, given a major label contract out of the clubs in LA since, um, you know, it'd been, it'd been ages, maybe Van Halen was the, you know, um, the one before us. So, uh, <laughs> this was, you know, 83, oh no, 80, 85, I believe. And so, um, we had been playing, well, actually we got signed very early on. So we got signed at our first show, but, uh, with, um, with me in the band. And so, uh, the um, it was a little bit prior to that whole signing frenzy that happened after um, the explosion of Guns N' Roses and all that. And we weren't really a part of that same thing. We were coming from more of a um, an underground uh, punk rock meets, you know, rock and roll. We had Chuck Berry songs going on in there and we were very much more of that than we were a hard rock, heavy metal sort of a, sort of a, a, a thing. And so, um, having said that, the, they're really, after a long time of doing this, I've sort of realized that, uh, bands like that have a, um, a difficulty being marketed in the United States since there doesn't seem to be a real clear marketing path for rock and roll. I mean, if you're a heavy metal band or, you know, uh, follow along in that sort of a formula, um, then it seems to be a lot easier. Whereas we would have been closer to like a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or something. And there really aren't a lot of radio stations that um, are ready to take a chance on a new band in that sort of format. And so that's been a problem I've run into with the Broken Homes, with Izzy and the Juju Hounds, and to a degree uh, with Bacteria years later as well, because um, uh, there just doesn't seem to be it's, – it's really sort of ironic to me that in this country, the, the, you know, the originators of rock and roll um, and it being such one of you know, the United States' most uh, cherished sort of cultural exports – that there really doesn't seem to be a clear path. You know, if you put out, you know, with Izzy's record, with the Broken Homes record, they'd put us in the same bin in the record store with, you know, hard rock and metal bands. And so, um, and there weren't any radio stations really ready to play us, except for college radio. But mainstream-wise, there weren't any, since many of them were formatted either with uh, Top 40 
or hard rock metal or um, and this happened, you know, uh, with the Black Crows as well. They were they were sort of in the same bins with us in the hard rock section in the record store. So they'll notice it once it's 20 years old and then it'll be on the classic rock format stations. But um, I just don't think that there's a there's a clear path. And so a lot what happened with a lot of the, you know, uh, record company guys is they would become frustrated in um, in meeting resistance, you know, in, in that department. And um, and so that's unfortunate. And that's still going on today. It really is. So. So, OK, so the broken homes. Uh, well, it, uh, the, you know, the broken homes break up. The, the, the home is broken and, and yeah. we we move on. How do you get into the sphere of the Guns N' Roses, Izzy Stradlin? How do you sort of end up on that first album? Well, again, the um, like we were both L.A. bands, you know, right. and so we, everybody knew each other. You know, we all knew each other. We'd all be crashing at the same girls' houses, you know, we, or waking up, I should say. Um, we we would, you know, there were, there were clubs going on every single night of the week. And um, there was a large group of the same people, all like-minded, who you would see on any given night. And so just sort of in that sort of scenario, you you know, you meet guys. And I believe Guns N' Roses opened up for the Broken Homes uh, once or twice. Uh, and, um, you know, and Izzy and I sort of became friends that way. And uh, so I was around to sort of, you know, witness as a fly on the wall, thanks to Izzy and the boys, um, I was able to, you know, sort of be around that whole, uh, to watch that whole thing happen. Um, I remember the first time I heard Appetite, it, they had just gotten out of the studio. And um, what you do when you just get out of the studio back then was you find the guy who's got the best car stereo and you all pile in his car to listen to it. And so that happened to be me. I had just gotten this cool, you know, car stereo in my car. And so all those guys piled in outside of some club, you know, and they were playing me. And um, and I'm listening along. I didn't have, you know, any idea what I was listening. I was more interested in getting inside the club and seeing some girls, you know. So um, that just I just kind of went by. It didn't register that I was going to be hearing that record for the rest of my life. That's kind of funny, by the way, because I, <laughs> I I remember being 16, 17, 18 in our, with our first cars. And whenever there was a new cassette tape that we liked, whether it was a new Def Leppard or or Guns N' Roses or what, we, and we had to go somewhere, we'd always yeah. pick the guy that had the best stereo in the best car because we're going to be driving for half an hour. It's, we, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, we. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad my car stereo didn't, my cassette player didn't eat that that thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> that would have been that would have been rough. I'm sure they had more copies though. Right, but but that, uh, they, um, yeah, and so that sort of went on, and later, and as Guns N' Roses developed, um, I uh, also back then I tended to, I, I sort of grew up traveling. My dad's a military guy, so um, I I would periodically, you know. Be, pop up in random places. And I think those guys found it amusing that I would show up in London or whatever unannounced. And so, um, that, uh, so I was able to see the first marquee shows that happened in London and whenever that was 87, I believe. Wow. And then later on, you know, I, I was around Izzy would invite me very graciously and, you know, um, to several events that a couple of that stick out in my mind where the, where the, um, the, the GNR and Rolling Stones at the Coliseum here. 
and I got to sort of tag along on that. And then the, the, a couple of days later, he asked me, he invited me to fly with him and Alan Niven, who I see that you, you've spoken with. And um, Alan and I and Axel and Izzy flew together uh, to um, Atlantic City when the Stones invited Axel and Izzy to, to special guests on that very early, I think it was the first pay-per-view event that they ever did. So, um, uh, as far as concerts go, so that was really, really cool. And so there was that friendship there, you know, we were buddies. And so, um, later on when broken homes had split because Craig Ross, uh, who was our guitar player, he moved over to, he was invited by Lenny Kravitz to go play with him and he's still there. So, um, Craig has been playing with Lenny for, you know, 35, 30 years or whatever, whatever it is now. Um, and he's doing a fantastic job and I'm still in contact with him. And um, so that sort of timing worked out to where there was a brief period when I, um, the Broken Homes, Craig had left and um, we were sort of dead in the water. And uh, I briefly joined my friend Mark Ford's band um, and then Mark ended up going with the Black Crows, so I was dead in the water again. And this was just over a span of a few weeks. It was all happened very quickly. And then um, I got a call from Izzy, and I had just seen on the news or MTV or whatever it was that he had left the band, and he was, and he called and asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm you know, watching TV with you quitting the band, you know, and I didn't know what, what was going on there. But he um, he asked me, no, no, what are you doing musically? And I said, well, nothing. He goes, great. I'll be at your house in 48 hours. And he drove here from from Indiana. And um, and that's that was the beginning of, uh, of what became the Juju Hounds. Wow, that's incredible. Did you have, and I was going to ask you about, of course, Buck Cherry and stuff, but I'm going to, these, these stories fascinate me now. At the time where you, where you turn on the TV and you see MTV or, or whatever it was and it says he's left the band, did you have any sense of it while you're hanging out at the Rolling Stones or you're, you're, was he ever saying to you, I'm really not happy here. This is not working for me. It's gotten too big. We're, 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 we're corporate. We're no longer a rock. And ro I mean, was there anything, any sense of, of, of impending doom, if you want, for the lack of a better I, word? I never, I never thought he'd do it. You know, I never thought he'd quit. And, um, I was proud of him when he did, uh, I mean, that takes a lot of balls. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I was aware. I, I never got that sense from, you know, any, any of the, my time spent with him. But I was aware early on that, you know, of the sort of, um, you know, the path that the band had, had sort of taken, which in, in my view was a little bit different from what he was into, you know, um, you know, we we're underground guys. We're into the New York dolls and we're into, you know, the, the stone baiters. Yeah. We're in the stiv we're into the stones and the clash and the, you know, and the damned and, and, you know, legendary stuff, you know, we're into the friggin' Ramones and for it to sort of have turned into that, um, must've been heartbreaking for him. And, um, and, you know, haven't had, I never grilled him about it too much. Um, uh, but I knew I know that, you know, he was unhappy with sort of some of the largesse that had been, you know, going on around that camp. 
and uh, and but I again I didn't I didn't know I didn't realize it was it had gotten to him as badly as it had and I and I and and even so I, I was still surprised that he made that move. Well, so am I because you you. Let me put this from from the fans' perspective. We all have sat here with, you know, the tennis racket and the mirror and the the, the drumming on the the steering wheel, and we all want to be and we have these fantasies. And and I'm sure Izzy, growing up, or Axel, or Slash, they all had the same fan. And then when you get it, you would think this is the greatest moment in my life. I've made it, and I'm not playing, you know, a tennis racket in front of my mirror, and yet he walked away and you, you, you scratch your head and you go, well, is, wasn't that the point? I mean, wasn't, wasn't playing the, the enormous dome in Tokyo with the point. Um, so it's, it's, it is, yeah. you know, yes, it was the point, but when you arrive there and you're doing something that you're having, that's, that's sort of shaking your faith a little bit when you don't have, and you realize it's not something and you don't feel great about it. It doesn't, you know, playing the enormous dome doesn't fix it. You know, it doesn't right. it doesn't uh, it doesn't put much salve on that wound. You know, that's always going to be there. Um, and I'll, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about the album. But at this point in 2018, do you still interact with Izzy at all? Do you call him or, or email him? Are you still friends or was it time has sort of drifted away? Man, I have tried. I have tried over the years and um, I uh, have reached the point where, you know, I, I understand the guy and I know that he hasn't, um, quit recording or, or playing music. And from time to time he'll put out an album. But, um, you know, as I said, I'm a band guy and I think, uh, that, you know, that would, that would kill me as well to just go in and, and, put out an album that you're just going to mail the people or whatever, you know, I like to tour and I like to, to play around the world. And I think that when you are fortunate enough to have made a record like the one that we were able to make and um, have it still resonate all these years later, I believe that if you have the capacity to make thousands of people around the world happy by traveling to where they live and playing. I think that's, you know, if it were me, that would be something I would want to do. Um, it's not, you know, it's not that difficult and you can do it on your own terms. You know, if you don't want to do interviews, I mean, he especially can, um, if you don't want to do it, if he doesn't want to do them, he doesn't have to do them. You know, um, he can pretty much call his own, design his own experience, you know, however right. he wants to do it. And so that I, I, I find that difficult, you know, to, to reconcile. I'm, and I, it's always been very confusing. There was no hard ending to uh, the band. I was never told that it was over. I think um, the words that he used were, were um, I don't know when I asked him that question. And so, um, you know, I spent a number of years sort of, uh, waiting um you know i'm a loyal guy he's my buddy and um and i felt you know very very proud of what we had done together and i couldn't understand um why he wouldn't uh uh want to continue and i was never given an answer so i mean that's left it sort of open for me for a number of years and i turned down a lot of stuff during that period and um and i think waiting for that you know, ended up, wound up, wound up precipitating me into a, a little bit of a down, downward spiral. 
having uh you know looking back on it um but uh over time man you know i just sort of got got the impression that he you know for whatever reason doesn't want to do that is not going to do that and there's nothing i can do to change his mind so i kind of i've i've pretty much given up given up at given this up. point and until a few months ago it was still possible um that's you know one of the points that bothers me the most um uh, you know a couple of months ago uh, our drummer died so um we don't have charlie anymore so you know now it's uh further away than ever than it ever was before of course uh my my condolences do go out to uh, the uh, quintana family absolutely um, yeah absolutely and um you, you know it's it's amazing uh, though the, the the success the album had, I mean, you had Shuffle It All and Somebody Knocking, two songs that you co-wrote. Um, talk to me a little bit about that experience and putting the songs together and putting the album together and sort of what were the expectations for Izzy at the time? Was this just, it's a solo album and then we'll see? Or was it, no, this is the band and we're going to go tour forever and it's, it, you know, how did sort of, everybody go into this did you have this impression that it was the band forever and uh, you know somebody knocking and shuffle it all those are great songs and they still sound great today oh thanks um yeah it was the band uh that was gonna last forever i mean i think it was it was even those i think i even heard those words come out of uh izzy's mouth at one point once the band had solidified in the very beginning um when he showed up, I mean, I think, you know, I know I was I was the, the only person that he'd reached out to in the very, very beginning. And we and we did not have a band and um, and we didn't really have a whole lot of songs either. Um, he just came with the idea that he wanted to do something. And I knew him well enough and we were like minded musically enough to where I didn't even we didn't really have to discuss what it was going to sound like. We kind of already knew um and i think we intentionally uh wanted to reaffirm his his sort of uh his his personality and his character and give him a um give him a voice to express what he'd been unable to express in the guns and roses world um you know he was a songwriter for them and i knew he could write songs Oddly, I never, ever questioned whether he could sing or not. I mean, that's just occurred to me recently. It, it, I, it was, there was never any, well, let's see if he can sing. We knew he could sing, even though I'd never heard him sing before. You know, um, it was just one of those things. And so uh, we didn't really give that. I mean, there wasn't a lot of time spent on, on, uh, on that. We, we were just headlong. We immediately had studio time. We were just trying to get guys uh, to fill out the rest of the band. And for a while there, there were a couple of other drummers along. We had Stan Lynch from from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers playing with us uh, in the studio for a little while. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and we had another buddy of mine who, who I think some of the tracks that he played on ended up coming out. Doni, um, Doni Costello, who was in uh, Burning Tree with Mark Ford. And um, so we were kind of trying different guys. And as far as guitar, um, there weren't any auditions or anything like that. Izzy just said one day that he wanted a guitar player who could play like Rick Richards. 
and I knew Rick Richards. So I was like, let's just get Rick. You know, um, the Broken Homes, we had toured extensively with the Georgia Satellites. And so I had a, a relationship with Rick. And so I called Rick and he was on a plane out here the next day. And um, that's when uh, and then when Charlie came along, um, you know, Charlie had sort of hit me up because he'd heard a rumor that this was going on and that we were we had gotten some studio time. And, and um, at that time, Charlie was playing with Bob Dylan. And, you know, I'm not going to expect anybody to quit Bob Dylan's band to come play with us, you know, but, but he did, you know, shockingly, he quit Bob Dylan's band and, uh, and he showed up down in the studio as well. So, and that was the Juju house. And, and, and actually I remember buying that album, anything that was GNR related back in the day, uh, I would buy now I'll, I'll get back to Izzy in a second, but I do want to get over to Buck Cherry for a second. Um, the band has had this, Strange thing of doing one or two albums, firing everybody, bring which is what happened with fifteen, right? By the time they got to fifteen, it, it was a whole new band, and then they do you know Black Butterfly and Confessions, and then they fire everybody, and then there's going to be a new album coming out with a whole new. Um, talk to me about that situation and coming into fifteen because it, it sort of was the album that nobody wanted, no record company wanted to to to. Um, sign it and eventually uh 11 7 music did and it becomes this great hit and it becomes this great rebirth and it, it even is sort of like a little bit of a resurgence in rock and roll at the time um talk to me about coming into that situation knowing that you were going to be the new band of the new launch of the new um buck cherry and, and then we'll talk about the album because it really is a classic <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that happened um, sort of out of the blue for me. I was completely unfamiliar with the band. Uh, I, I'm a little bit older than the than those guys. You know, I'd sort of um, been involved in a scene that sort of, I guess, wound up inspiring um, Josh and Keith. And so a lot of the guys that were their influences were you know, were my friends. And so in the very beginning, uh, I didn't know there was no excitement. I didn't know what was going on. I was invited. I had met Keith, uh, and I was invited to be a part of a band. And as I spoke to that a little bit earlier, um, with you, those opportunities are very rare. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a band. I was looking for a gang of guys. And um, and I was looking to, you know, do what I do, which is contribute songwriting and, um, of course, play the bass. And um, so I was invited to be a part of this band with these guys to try to get into a studio and make a record. That's how it was presented. And that's all I expected in the very beginning. That record turned out to be 15, and um, all of the, the the hubbubs that sort of surrounded it immediately after was was totally a surprise um, to me. And uh, so I went in with the intention of doing my best to get some songs together and um, get some ideas and sort of feel my way around these guys because I, um, as I said, I hadn't I hadn't I wasn't familiar with their previous work. Um, and uh, so 
again, I was, you know, expecting it to be a, a sort, and it was affirmed to me many times that it was going to be a band. And, and I think maybe we have different definitions uh, for that word. Um, you know, when I, when I hear a band, I, I think of uh, democracy and, um, and it certainly didn't turn out to be that. Um, it sort of changed halfway through, which, as you alluded to, um, seems to be a pattern with these guys. And um, you'd think they would have uh, figured it out by now because it keeps happening. But, uh, but um, you know, uh, I had a lot of fun. You know, that again, that first tour was was a blast, you know, and and. and you know, a huge hits and commercially successful. I'd never really experienced that. Um, with the Juju Hounds record, we didn't really see any of that. I mean, we were playing great gigs outside of the U.S., but here in the States, it was a little bit depressing. And so I didn't get the platinum record or the, you know, the TV shows and all that jazz that we were doing in Buckcherry. So it was a lot of fun. Well, you mentioned that that, that Izzy and and the Juju Hounds didn't, didn't have the, that same level of success. Do you recall that being a disappointment to Izzy, or was he just happy making his own music? Man, I, we were all happy with that record, you know. Um, what we did that um, Buck Sherry didn't do, um, I believe, is uh, we started outside of the United States. You know, we we, we started in uh, our first tour with the Juju Hounds was Europe and Australia and Japan. And uh, we focused a lot in those territories. And um, unfortunately, one of the reasons why I believe uh, now that Buck Cherry um, sort of ran into some problems, which were some, some points that I was trying to raise while I was in the band. Ultimately, I raised them so many times that I got myself fired uh, from the band. And, um, but I had sort of seen some mistakes uh, like that happening in the past. And I was, of course, because I was in the band, I was trying to avoid those missteps. And one of them is when you have an initial success and um, of course money starts rolling in, you um, you need to be very careful not to, to not allow that to um, raise your monthly overhead to the degree where you now need to continually tour um, constantly for the rest of your life in order to sustain a uh, lifestyle or whatever. And I, I put it down to greed and a num number of other unpleasant um, characteristics, uh, human characteristics. But um, that is, I'm afraid, what happened with Bacteria. We were touring in the United States for two, three years at a time. And then we would go home and have, you know, two days off and then be called to, like, get your songs together. We're, we've got songwriting day and we're going to make a record in three weeks so that we can get back on the road. And I think ultimately the songs suffer, the albums suffer, um, as, you know, evidenced by the subsequent albums I was involved with, 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 with Buck Cherry. And um, you don't have time to write songs, you know, and um, in three weeks, you know, it's not enough time to make a record, but what? everyone eager uh, to get back out on the road to be able to make the big bucks and uh, in the States. And while at the same time, ignoring other global markets. And in my experience, those global markets are the ones who will sustain you after the Jay Leno show is over here in the States and you're no longer being played on the radio, you know, Europe, South America, Japan, and 
the band in Bashiri, we never took the time to to go to those places since the money was better here. All right. So so let me ask you, because you mentioned that the songwriting was suffering. So uh, and I don't want to bust your balls, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway. You had, of course, the great success with Crazy Bitch. And, and of course, it's a shocking title. Oh, my God. It, you know, the t- when you get to Black Butterfly and you put together the song Too Drunk, was that just... Was that was that just a little too contrived? Was was that sort of just trying to say, hey, we had this salacious, crazy bitch song, and so we're just going to do something? It, it's as a fan, I always took it as like, oh, come on, you're 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 trying too hard to just repeat the fucking past, and please, you can do man, better. Man, Mitch, I hate that song so much, bro. Uh, but <laughs> it's funny because. Uh, you know, I thought we were steaming ahead okay with that record, you know, given the time we had to come up with songs and stuff. And um, that one sort of came in the back door very late in the in the process. And I share exactly your sentiment and exactly what you just expressed. I thought it was contrived and stupid. And, um, and so I didn't really want it on the album. Um, not only was it included on the album, but it was made the first single. And um, I felt like that was a mistake because um, yes. you know, anyone, anyone with any you know rock and roll sense of anything is going to see exactly what you said that it was a contrived you know uh, effort to follow up on the success of um, of that other song and um, and so I think made enough stink about it that it was dropped from the record after a while, but you know. There are a lot of people who like Crazy Bitch, and there are a lot of people who like Too Drunk to Fuck. You know what I mean? Um, I and they were upset about it. You know, I don't know. Um, I personally thought Crazy Bitch was equally contrived and stupid, and was blown away by the by the fact that it had the success that it did. Uh, it, I think, you know, a lot of that had to do with the fact that social media was a um, emerging as a powerful entity in itself. And we had a video that had boobs in it, you know, and I think it's as simple as that, really. Uh, We were very lucky in the timing of that. And, um, you know, the song had some energy to it, a certain energy to it. It wasn't necessarily my bag, you know, but I think I learned a lot from watching it become the success that it did, you know. And, and, And it also came at a time where you have to remember back in early 2000s, we were getting through all the depressing music of, you know, whoever, your Nirvanas and your Soundgardens and all this, where everything was just miserable, miserable, miserable. Right. And, and, and Crazy Bitch, regardless of, of the lyrical content, was just sort of somebody saying, we're, we're, fuck it. We're, we're, we're just, we're just going to throw caution to the wind and, and be sort of crazy. And, and be. So it made sense that it blew up, but it, it's definitely not. Uh, the best uh, song on the album. I think everything is a, an all-time classic. Sorry, whether it's the acoustic version or the album version, absolutely classic. Uh, your take on Pump It Up from Elvis Costello, brilliant. Um, and, you know, I don't want to badmouth um, Black Butterfly. I mean, Rescue Me, Tired of You, th- th- those are great songs. And, of course, um, Highway Star that replaced Too Drunk, mercifully. 
Sorry. Yes. So, so, sorry, oh, people. You. Sorry, people in Bug Cherry, but mercifully, it replaced it. It was a great cover. It just really was a great cover. So, you know, later on, man, I think uh, certain guys in the band were were upset enough about the. Um, they blamed the the sort of commercial failure of uh, Black Butterfly on the fact that we took too drunk to fuck off, and um, and they re-added it later on, which confused the issue even more. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a, a shit show. Yeah. Well, well, you see, and I, I would argue, I would blame the commercial failure on having it on because I remember I had bought 15, I had played it to death in the car. And when that one, and I, like I said before, I just threw my hands up and I went, you're yeah. kidding me, right? I mean, honestly, you're kidding. I mean, you, you, you're going to put, you, you have this modicum of success. You're, you're, you're back being the it band. And then you come up with something so remarkably stupid. I mean, really? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, again, man, we, we didn't have, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of time spent on these records because the priority was, you know, to get back on the road and to make those big, you know, uh, six figure guarantees out in the Midwest and all of that stuff. And it was a, a, a fast cash grab. And, and when you do that, um, you're, you know, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, and you know, people are going to see through that eventually. Um, and it's going to kill your career. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately I, I felt that happening, uh, slowly over time. And, um, I realized that we were the only band in the world who was touring for three years nonstop at a time and taking three weeks to make a record and all of that stuff. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of very common industry pitfalls, uh, that you can fall into were, were sort of, you know, dove into these guys threw themselves into them and it was very hard to watch you know considering i was in the band too you know it was my livelihood as well i was concerned about and again um i felt at one point we were headlining arenas and you know it was almost too big to you really have to you really have to try to, to screw that up you know it takes yeah. to it takes a, it takes a bit of effort <laughs> to to do that i mean i've never seen a band lose its audience uh, an audience that size uh more quickly in my life yeah and 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 listen overall the album is 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 is, is, great, is decent i mean you know rescue me like i said is really good and uh you did of course do the 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 kiss tour in uh, yep. what was it 2009 right 2009 yeah. right yeah i guess uh, uh, what was that like? What, now, first of all, and, and I'm going to ask you one of these sort of industry secret kind of questions, but was the band asked to open or did you buy on to the tour, which many bands are prone to do? You know, I, <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's a valid question. Um, I really don't know the answer to that. I wasn't privy to a lot of the decisions that were made, good or bad. Um, I didn't know about them until they were, you know, sort of sent to me in an email. Here's what we're doing. So, um, again, you know, it wasn't really a Democrat. We didn't sit all in a room and go, hey, you know, let's let's see if we can get on this kiss tour. That decision was made without uh, my knowledge. Um, you know, again, fun tour, though. Uh, it was a fun tour. It was a lot of fun, man. And it was, you know, we got to play to a ton of people and um, and. It was, from what I understand, uh, successful um, and all of that stuff. Uh, 
it's um, yeah, I don't I don't know that we would have bought on. I think we we had a, we had hits at the time. And so um, I think, uh, again, like with Motley Crue, you know, we had giant hits for those crew fest tours and uh, we were bringing in a lot of our own people as well. So it was good for both bands. Yeah, and I think it's also good to be associated, even though at the time Buck Cherry had still had like a 10-year career, there was still this perception, I think, by a lot of fans and media that you were the new hip thing. Sure, sure, sure. And, you know, like I said, that's, you know, it turns out to be mutually beneficial, both bands. And um, and we had a great time on that one. I'm, you know, happy to have uh, been a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we approach the hour uh, mark here. I'm going to start wrapping up, but I do want to say uh, a couple of things. Yeah, where is he? Right? <laughs> it goes fast, right? Right, um, right? The the last album that you that you were involved was, uh, of course, Confessions, and that includes the song Gluttony on it, which is to me the best Buck Cherry song ever. That every time I hear it, it just gets me. It pumps me up. I mean, you can have a bad day and you put on Gluttony and. Ugh! Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was a great record. That's one of, uh, you know, aside from 15, that's the one I'm, I'm most happy to have uh, been involved with. Um, and uh, I think Josh really um, sort of rose to the occasion, both uh, melodically and lyrically on that one. You know, just uh, a lot of things clicked on that record, um, despite yep. the uh, the the slippery slope we found ourselves on at the time. Um, so, you know, I made up for a good little bookends for me, you know, in, in the beginning, you know, a lot of great stuff happens when everybody in the band is hungry and desperate, you know, and, uh, we got that at the beginning with my tenure with 15 and I think towards the end as well with confessions. So I made a nice little, uh, bookends. It really bookends nicely for you. And, and what I find amazing about that album is I don't know who picks the songs and who made the choice at the record company, but there are two songs in the Japanese edition, When the Fire Starts and Give Them What They Want, which are, after Gluttony, the second and third best songs, and yet in North America, they were left off. And I was like, well, what idiot chose to leave those off? <laughs> no offense, but... I don't get it, man. You know, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens, again, you know, um, in, in the the industry in this country, I, I, I haven't been able to figure it out in, in 35 years. Right, I give but, it, but, I'm trying, you know, but you got to agree, right? Those, those are probably the two best songs after gluttony. Maybe, sure. Maybe nothing left but tears or lust, but, but anyway, um, and then I'll, I'll finish with this on the bug cherry thing. Uh, like I mentioned, and of course you're not part of the band anymore. Uh, but are you surprised that they're moving forward without Keith? I mean, isn't that a little bit like Paul Stanley moving forward with Kiss without Gene Simmons? No, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, it, um, uh, you know, again, um, that, you know, Josh is a very driven person and he's going to forge ahead, you know, um, damn the torpedoes. And, um, and I'm happy for him that he's able to continue to, um, you know, earn his uh, livelihood and um, take care of, um, you know, his uh, expenses and all of that to to a degree. Um, I believe part of partly that drive is also what has killed the band um, on several occasions now, and it's you know such a clear pattern that um, you know it's hard to ignore 
as you mentioned, you know, basically killed the band twice doing the exact same things. So, um, uh, you know, you get into trouble when you, um, when you value or you place value certain members over other members within a band situation. And, um, and again, the, 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 the greed that stems from that, um, you know, the band was worked into the ground twice, you know, and, uh, to the point where the, the, the whole band falls around, falls apart around, uh, Josh and, um, which is a shame because, um, I think he's a, a very talented and driven guy and a, and a great front man. And, uh, can, uh, I would just, you know, try to, I mean, I, I'm sure he's happy doing what he's doing. You know, I don't know. I, I, it was really difficult for me to, um, remain a part of it. Yeah. And, and I will say this just from my own fan perspective, uh, cause I don't know all the inner dealings obviously, but, but Josh, when he comes out there, he's a tough front man to beat. I mean, he, he, moves around and he he gets you going so you know you 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 have to at least give him credit or kudos for that that he he really does know how to sort of shake it and get and get the the fans going yeah i'm in with you so so good on that uh jimmy james or two fingers whichever one (laughs) you prefer any of those man it's fine mitch it's been a pleasure Absolute pleasure, and I think uh, we definitely need a, a part two at some point. And and if Izzy does call you, uh, make sure he calls me because uh, he, <laughs> he just has to. He'd, he'd be a great interview, of course, but uh, one can hope and dream, right? I'll do my best, man. I don't know that he's great with the telephone. But yeah, I'll, I know. We'll try. We'll, um, we'll get we'll get the Izzy and Axel in a in a dual interview because uh, they both love. <laughs> sitting down with the media, right? So. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, that's their favorite thing to do. Um, I will uh, definitely keep in touch, and I will um, try to let you know if I come up with something that I'd like to promote. It seems like such a you know great uh, forum for me to do so, and I'm sitting here with nothing. I don't have a record. I mean, at the at the very least, I'm, I'm you know I'm not I'm not done yet. Um, I still write songs, and I've got a few together, and we'll see what happens with that. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I'd be more interested in, um, finding a band and, um, starting small and maybe keeping it small and, uh, trying to avoid some of those pitfalls that, uh, seem to fall into time and time again. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I certainly wish you the best and hope you find something because really, uh, confessions, particularly in 15 are two of my favorite records, and you had a great part in those. And so, uh, yeah, I need more. And, of course, the the, the first Izzy, the Juju Hounds, uh, Izzy, and that first album was great, too. So three albums that are that are absolute winners and classics. And, uh, yeah, I need more. I need more from you. So, so All right, Mitch. You got it, buddy. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, man. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.